Yeah, we had to take a week to kind of reassess our lives here. <laughs> so now we're pure tea drinkers. Get it all together. <laughs> yeah, it's a slippery slope drinking tea. That's what brought the ruttles down. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to Radio Moorpark, the podcast where we analyse, discuss, review and rank Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time. This week we're talking about Men at Arms. This week, as I am usually, I'm Colm and this week as he is most of the time. Sporadically. Uh, I am Steve. Hello. Hello everybody and how are you? Well, you sound like you're doing great. Yeah, yeah, that's the main Yeah, thing. that was an enthusiastic response. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we're discussing, going to be discussing Men at Arms, which is the second in the, the wildly popular bike by this World Standards uh, City Watch sub-series. So before we jump into the uh, heat of discussing it, Steve, do you want to refresh people's memories as to what goes down in said book? I would love to. Let me just get my reading voice on. <clears throat> Pardon me. In the city of Ankh-Morpork, an assassin named Edward de Eith seeks, the re- seeks to re-establish the monarchy in order to return the city to its former glory. He hopes to do this by placing Corporal Carrot of the Night Watch, who he believes to be the king's descendant, on the throne. Before he can do so, he needs to discredit Lord Veterinary's government through a series of murders, which he performs using the Gon, the first and only handheld firearm on the disc. Meanwhile, Sam Vimes of the City Watch is adjusting to the prospect of both retiring and entering high society once he is married to Sybil Ramkin, the richest woman in the city. On top of that, he is also dealing with the newly expanded and diverse ranks of the Watch, Detritus, a troll, Cuddy, a dwarf, and Angua, a woman-slash-werewolf. As the bodies begin to pile up, this ethnic platoon begin to work together in order to prevent anarchy from spreading throughout the city. It is eventually revealed that Edward de Eith explained his plan to Dr. Crucis, the head of the Assassin's Guild. Crucis then murders de Eith and takes up the plan himself. Obsessed with the Gon, he attempts to assassinate the patrician, but is stopped by the Watch, who apprehend him. Crucis attempts to show Carrot the evidence of his heritage, but Carrot kills him and hides the Gon and evidence where it cannot be found. He is made captain of the city, uh, city Watch by Veterinary, while Vimes is married and made the commander. Boom. And they always Nailed it. Ever after. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel like we might be giving a bit too much away, but it might not be fresh in people's minds, so it's, yeah, it's, no. it's good to go over everything again. Spoilers, by the way, uh, if you're looking at this retroactively. <laughs> yeah, that's I, I can't imagine and couldn't really see the point of a podcast like this to discuss the work without, you know, spoiling everything. <laughs> it, would seem, it would seem like it would be uh, insanely obtuse. This is true, this is true. Um, um, if it sounds like my voice is getting distant it's because I forgot my book but I've returned now so not to worry so Colm I dare I ask how did you feel about this book I really really enjoyed it and I, I said to you last week at the end of Lords and Ladies that it was going to be an, an interesting and odd experience for me reading it because I had got the first three City Watch books in an omnibus and tended to read them all at once and then therefore they sort of all was blurred together in my head like I, I could distinguish between them and saying oh you know the dragon one the gun one and the golem one yeah um, but uh, like a lot of moments and uh, yes tended to blur together and character development and things like that so it was it was a different experience just reading this um, like in publication order and assessing it on its own and yeah I actually really liked it I think mm. it's wonderfully 
paced and structured a lot of it um like the city watch books tend to have this very fast relatively fast paced structure where the entire book it only depicts events that happen occur over a couple of days the mm-hmm. police procedural format of them gives them a central like mystery to anchor the rest of the the plot and the narrative around and then he just he, he really deftly for a lot of this switches between what's going on in multiple characters like i think there was one page that has about you know in my edition at least had about three or four different points of view where you just snap back to Cuddy and Detritus as they're making their way through those you know under or chasing the yeah I think it's later revealed to be Edward down the street snap back the carrot snap back the vimes mm. um in a way that's that's very compelling and just makes it really uh engaging and exciting to read mm. yeah I have to agree with you I always really enjoy the guards books because I just think they make great detective stories. I mean, it's it's nearly always told. It is always told from the point of view of Vimes, while while snapping back and forth between other uh, guards. But and he's such a compelling character, so it's it's always great to come back to him. It's it's almost always enjoyable. I do remember uh, not having that favorable opinion of Men at Arms in my head mm-hmm. when compared to the others, because uh, the other guards books, uh, in particular, Guards, Guards, and uh, Feet of Clay. Because, as you said, you know, there's the dragon one, the gun one, and the golem. And it's like, well, the first one's got a dragon. How can we top that? And, like, then there's a golem. Like, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And the gun is like, well, you get guns in real life. That's not that big. Like, you know, it just, it, I remember thinking it's kind of lackluster. But um, reading it in this way, the way we have now, and, you know, looking at the some of the themes and, um, you know, the, the relevance uh, of the themes uh, in that point in time, and even specifically now... It's a. Uh, it's very relevant and very interesting to yeah uh, look at. I have to say it is interesting that the first book in the Disc World that's like essentially about racial and cultural tensions. I mean, it's it's mm. like they refer to like speciesism and things like that. And it's trolls, dwarfs, and and humans and and werewolves too. But I mean, it's essentially like a parallel for uh, racial debates and a you know affirmative action thing of recruiting people from different cultures mm. into these uh, civic institutions comes. After maybe the only book, like the only book in the whole disc world, or certainly the only race in the elves that are just depicted as unilaterally bad. Yeah, it's you very know, odd. <laughs> yeah, if you think, but before that we had um, we had Omnia, which was this terrifying theocracy, and obviously Vorbis is this almost irredeemable character, and yet then it, it, within that we see the good in in uh, Omnians like Br- uh, Bruta. And we also see that, it, you know, they're very much driven by fear and mm. by the uh, constructions around them and so on. And likewise in Genoa, in, which is abroad, you have a city that is sort of corrupt, but ultimately it's only one person at the top ruling through fear. And like Genoa itself is in this wretched hive of scum and villainy <laughs> where people would slit your throat. And then we have Lords and Ladies where the elves are, you know, uh, wonderfully, compellingly, colourfully evil and sadistic <laughs> and then following on from that is this very nuanced look at uh, racism and, and cultural difference yeah it's interesting it feels like something that he uh, I feel like uh, in the lead up to this it's something that Terry Pratchett taps into but is very wary to actually explore because there's almost kind of um, uh, like a safety net line in every book that kind of addresses it. Like I remember in Witches Abroad when Nanny Og uh, meets Mrs. Goggle mm-hmm. and um, there's a line that simply says something along the lines of uh, 
this is the first uh, black person that Nanny Og ever met. Mm-hmm. And then it goes, there's that little bit, wonderful bit that says, uh, there's not much room for racism in the disc when speciesism is, is, all, is like so rampant. Yeah. And in that context, it fa- sounds very dismissive. It's just a joke. But in this one, like it's, it's very, very like, wow. Okay. It's very apparent. Like, yeah, you know, speciesism is racism. And actually there's a bit, um, if you don't mind, mm-hmm, there's a yeah. bit in Lords of Ladies that I think, if it was me, I remember it kind of triggered something in my mind uh, while I was reading Men at Arms is at one point they talk about half-elves. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's it's interesting because whereas uh, regular elves are just seen as, you know, as I say, pure evil, like there's there's no sympathy to be had from, they're just uh, generically bad. Uh, whereas half-elves uh, have this interesting ambiguity because, you know, they... Uh, everyone can see what they are and um, you know they're just I'm trying to think they're trying to I think I'm trying to, I might be remembering this wrong but I think uh, they're trying to live in the real world but because everyone knows what they are they're treated with disdain so it's kind of touching upon racial tensions there Is that, am I remembering that right? Um, I thought it was when it's brought up in Lords and Ladies I thought it was to kind of address a continuity thing where I know in moving pictures and maybe in another book he refers to elves being mm. around you know, he like uh, uh, I, I think Victor sees a bunch of elves in the uh, like the big uh, canteen place in Hollywood, and there oh, might be one or two other references to it. And then he's developing elves, this race who live on another plane of reality. So I mean, the discworld continuity is always a bit elastic. So maybe he wasn't concerned about this at all. But mm. I always thought it as an attempt to, you know, draw a line between these elves who live on another uh, plane of reality and only can occasionally encroach into our reality, and are these terrible. Um, huge threats to a society like Lankra and the throwaway references to elves living among people in er- in earlier books and then I've, I've begun reading soul music for our next episode um, now and the jokes about um, imp looking a little elvish is something similar where it's a mm-hmm. suggestion that there have you know been half elves and things like that around and, and that like makes um, it provides a context for how you can have the elves and lords and ladies uh, be the creatures they are while there are still some form of elves in the in the disc but it's funny that moving pictures actually is the only probably the time before this where we had that like speciesism racism parallel mm. being played up and it was played up for a joke where uh, what's his name rock is taking exception to the fact that ginger doesn't want to be depicted as being in love with him yeah and and he you know is acting as if she's she's being racist but as you said like the the joke there is that that argument is like a parallel to you know a, a very um, fraught real life uh, racial debate, but within within the context, it it, it doesn't like it doesn't work like that at yeah, all. Because yeah. of course, she's not going to want to be in love with this two ton piece of piece <laughs> of rock. Um, and but like that, that's probably the most explicitly he's made that parallel before before that. And it was you know uh, just a like a, a funny yeah. humorous little scene. And here it's something much bigger where you have. Did scene where Vimes is with all of the nobles in Sybil's um, place and they're uh, making all these references to, you know, dwarves being cunning and trolls just being stupid and so on that you can really see paralleling with, you know, real life racism against um, certain cultures. But they're still, the derogatory terms they have for them are still very um, fantasy based, like mm. what uh, Corporal or Captain Quirk referring to the dwarf the section of the city where the dwarves live was tiny town and you know people calling suckers, yeah trolls um, rocks, yeah, yeah. Of rock and so mm-hmm. on um, yeah it's um, 
it is very interesting. I do sort of feel that it's a case of because there was def- there was there was an increase of commentary on uh, race or species in this case, and because it became uh, it became a recurring thing, but it was so flippant. I feel like uh, Terry Pratchett might have felt that there was an onus on him that he actually had to address this personally like I mean not not like a massive onus is mm. in like well I have to do this like everyone's banging on my door and saying you're yeah. you're speciesist but like um I do feel like that he might have thought to himself um you know I've, I've brought this up in such a way so many times maybe not even in a bad way but like just in the case of this really should be explored and it could be explored in a really interesting way and um he does explore there's like a lot of little you know interesting things about the way Racism or species, I'm just going to call it speciesism from now on, even though that's more difficult to say. Um, but one thing that's really interesting is that uh, the dwarves and the trolls are treated as minorities, but in many ways they're kind of superior than people. Like the only way that they're really, uh, you know, inferior is in the trolls' case in terms of intelligence. And the only reason that, like, uh, the dwarves are, like, they seem to, they're, uh, depicted as being quite cunning but because their only interest seem to be in gold and digging they're kind of mm-hmm. you know dismissed so it's yeah that's an interesting sort of um i like the uh, the whole idea of trolls uh, intelligence being linked to um, you know the cold and things like mm. i think like something he just initially came up with this old this old fantasy trope of trolls turning to stone during the day and why yeah. this happen and so on but i think it makes a good job of showing how like the different ways in which we um perceive intelligence are actually really like culturally specific mm. um and there, there's a great cartoon where you see a, a group of animals lined up in front of a desk and it's for a job interview <laughs> and the guy uh, like you know say you've got an elephant a dog a monkey and a fish or something and, and a fella uh, behind the desk says now to make things perfectly equal we're all got, we're got, all going to ask you to do the one thing for this test Climb that tree, and the monkey's smiling, and all the other animals are looking, you know, uh, understandably put out. And it's this idea of uh, how would you put it, like um, equality versus equity, where uh, so so much of what we consider useful or intelligent, or you know, people's ability to cope within situations is very contextual. Mm. And trolls, when they're up in the mountains, are actually relatively smart, and then they come down to the city. And the the plains, the lowlands, the heat slows down, and they're thought of as really stupid because the human context of like Morpork is like seen as the default barometer for intelligence. You know, mm-hmm. if you're not smart here, then who cares if you're smart somewhere else? <laughs> it doesn't count. You know, this this is uh, like that's an abnormal situation. This is the the normal situation. Mm-hmm. And it's actually interesting that um, the context in which this is examined is through the way. Uh, they join the city guards, which, you know, uh, has uh, binary relevance in the real world here because we have all this, these issues with um, transgender people joining the army now in uh, mm-hmm. America. Uh, so, you know, in, in this situation, I mean, join the guards, it's one of, the, one of those situations where, uh, you know, you don't really need a specialized skill set. Like, yeah, you know, it is more or less a case of following orders and, you know, Colon can do it, you know, Nobby can do it, everyone can do it. So it is, in some ways, an equal opportunities thing. Whereas, um, you know, as you say, if it was like viewed through a different context, like you couldn't see a troll being a witch, for example. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it's cool that they, they do it that way. That And uh, he examines it in, in a fair lens, I suppose. 
Yeah, I'm trying to say um, to, to look at like racism, speciesism as well feels. Um, I, I I know what you mean about him kind of feeling an honest deal. It's it's certainly a very conscious decision, but it also feels like a natural enough development of where Ank Morpork's going because Ank Morpork goes from being this sword and sorcery team park in the early books to being a sort of quasi steampunk city that you know that actually can stand has in for yeah for any for any um uh, for any other city and such a big feature of cities well like you know particularly in uh, modern day is of big cities is cultural diversity and attention when you have that cultural melting pot of all of these different uh, cultures and people coming to live under the one place like there's a lot else here like uh, the weather the fact that the heat wave is in it Mm. Um, you know, it does it does a really good job of just kind of like subtly underlining the rising tensions. And I feel like it's a feature to watch books. Like I, I think in Feet of Clay, it's it's there's mist throughout the whole thing, um, okay. and fog. And at the uh, the start of Night Watch, the storm is a big feature. Uh, like they're conducting this, <laughs> oh, you yeah. know, search for Carcer while the storm is there. And like when you think of living in a city, you know, modern metropolis as Ang Horbrook essentially is. It can be a very alienating experience where you pass, uh, you know, you're never more than five feet from a person, but you might, they're all complete strangers to you and you're all going about your business and maybe not looking or not caring about anything else. And something like unusual weather is one of the few communal experiences Mm -hmm. within this space we're all sharing, you know. Absolutely. When you have something like a big heat wave or fog, it's the kind of thing you can turn around and talk to a, a stranger about and that you know will be on everyone's mind, like whether it's just remarking. Mm. oh god it's roasting or can't see nose in front of my face anything like that um it's something that is i think obviously it's important in rural communities because for so many of them they you know their relationship with the land and nature is much more essential to their actual daily welfare but i think in a city it forms an interesting communal experience and here it's you the heat waves used so well to underscore the rising tension but also as another like feature of living in a city that Mm. It's also really interesting that um, the plot itself does actually serve the the point that um, Terry Pratchett is trying to make. That in that, literally, the antagonist is trying to bring the city back to a previous time of like chaos and anarchy. Basically, like in his head, it's you know it's um, it's order, but uh, in reality, it's not really because it is like reverting back to the previous era of, as you said, you know the uh, medieval fantasy. Uh, funhouse thing but um, because the watch are trying to prevent that they're literally advocates for change trying to uh, you know make the pl- make the city and make the watch a more diverse location so you know it's interesting that the, the plot actually serves the theme so very very well um, in this situation can I ask you um, who do you think is the biggest speciest out of all the people in this book out of all the guards Oh, did the day watch count? Because then it's definitely quirk. Well, <laughs> no, okay, no, we'll go for just the night watch for the time being. Um, see, Vime says he's specious, but has the excuse of actually like uh, knowing, uh, you know, knowing dwarves and trolls, and mm. co- contrasts himself with the um, nobles who who don't know any of them. And I, I do like that idea that runs through the, the noble characters from Edward and his plan to, actually, as I said, like you know, sort of reverse the city's development. And from the nobles who complain at Sybil's um, party about 
uh, all these uh, trolls and dwarves coming to the city, how what they're referring back to is this really vague golden yeah. age that they never really spell out like in explit you know in specific terms how or why it's better or what's so you know it's it's it's, it's it's like it's it's a fantasy that they've given the veneer of history to justify their their prejudice, which I really like. Um, because I think it's something we still see today. But <laughs> what's uh, that but, line in it that they have a higher status than intelligence or something like that? <laughs> something yeah, along those lines doesn't jump to mind. But yeah, that sounds. <laughs> but uh, like Vimes is definitely, I think, more of a misanthrope in that it's just people he doesn't like in general. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I like the fact that Vimes and even Carrot, who gets uncomfortable around mm. the undead, are still just latently racist, essentially. Yeah. In a way that, like, if you're going to have them functioning within. And Moorpork is a sort of like racist society in the sense that it's, it's only re- you're getting the feeling it's only recently opening up itself to trolls and dwarves and you know all of these other people basically under veterinary. So even if people are getting on with that, there's going to be that tension there. Um, and it will be all too simple to just say, Oh, these characters are the good guys, so of course they don't feel any of this prejudice. But yeah. like, well, if this was their environment they grew up in, they definitely would in ways that they wouldn't even notice they're in, in ways that, like, you know, you or I or, or uh, like people that like to think of themselves as, uh, I suppose, very um, progressive and open minded in areas probably do anyway, like, in, you know, in little ways that, like, we don't realize until it's brought to our attention. So I like that, like, um, because the guards are protagonists, they're not just automatic like paragons, paragons of tolerance and so on. That they have their own hangups. Mm. Um, it's but like, like Colin and Nobby definitely feel like they're the most. Uh, how would you put it? The most open to just spouting off unjustified. I heard this from a man down the pub. Ideas about ideas about race and species, and yet at the same time, you feel it would like they never actually put them in they're too lazy to actually put them into any action you know but um, does Nobby actually ever say I was about to make the point that I don't think uh, Nobby ever actually says anything particularly derogatory to any of them I mean I know he no, laughs a lot right, about yeah. uh, Angua but I think that's more to do with her sexuality than yeah. to do with anything else because um, I, I couldn't find any instances where he's actually uh, I, 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 part of me kind of thought that in some ways, Nobby's a bit of a minority in his own case. You know, <laughs> yeah. there's a few points where it says that the only thing that uh, the only thing that differentiated Nobby between dwarfs was uh, his actual species, not his height, or some something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a running joke later when everyone in the city knows there's a werewolf in the watch, but they don't know who it is, and they always assume it's oh, him. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's interesting because he's. So, it seems like he's so hard put upon. But also at the same time so casual to everybody that I don't think he comes across as racist at all to mm-hmm. me, which is interesting. But I do agree with you. I think it's it's almost essential that Vimes and even Carrot have like something, some kind of hang up in some way. And like Vimes, I I I actually wanted to try and find a flaw in the argument here. I wanted to say, well, no, maybe Vimes actually is a bit racist, but he does feel very justified in his attitude towards people and that like oh, I don't like trolls I don't like dwarves but I don't like people and that does feel justified when he um, he gives Bjorn Hammerhawk's family the news mm-hmm. of Bjorn's death and he treats them with incredible respect and uh, you know even when he's going down to the smith uh, he brings Carrot along to make sure that he doesn't do anything wrong although that might just to make sure he doesn't get an axe in the back of the head uh, but even Carrot yeah as you say it's good that he has that as well but 
I really like the part when um, Cuddy and Detritus are out together, mm. and uh, even like their arguments and how they get along there, like uh, it's it's a really well developed relationship towards some kind of moving towards like being tolerant and actually really affectionate towards one another in a way that feels sort of natural like they don't mm. you know they don't just get this like one moment of togetherness and it fix a switch and they're like now we know racism is wrong and we yeah. are brothers in arms um but that part when cuddy keeps thinking first they're chasing edward and then they end up down the sewer and the, the thing that keeps driving them on is this fear of like how disappointed colin will be in yeah them when he comes back and it's sort of based around the kind of like like Colin, I don't think ever said like he never uh, refers to um, uh, Cuddy as a grit sucker or to try this as a rock. I think there's one or two bits where he has to just stop himself from saying it when yeah. they're there. But he do, but that whole atmosphere of uh, uh, contempt or mistrust towards other species and the idea of the watch is really going to the dogs. If you have to recruit the likes he use is so all pervading that even though he doesn't quite say it. It's weighing on Cuddy's mind and driving him forward the whole time. Like he, yeah. he you know, he, he he has this idea in his head that I know he's disgusted that the dwarf is in the watch, and I don't want to basically give him the satisfaction mm. of living up to his, you know, living up to those um, uh, preconceptions. So we're going to track this guy down. Mm. Um, and I know it's it's quite tragic in the end because that you know in the end then Cuddy ends up dying just just when they're sort of on the cusp of they've recruited a load of dwarves and trolls into the militia and I mean he's he's sort of been normalised by default because he, he's one of the few actual watchmen that the other, that the other guys know mm. um, and I actually yeah, I, I found like that that him his dead is, is quite sad because he's, he's a reasonably well developed character in it yeah uh, and it's all the sadder in hindsight having read the other city watch books and you see what like complete fixtures of the watch detritus and annua um, and of course colon nubby carrot and vimes go on to be and in this book it's just the uh the, the, the six of them and so he, he he never gets to kind of go on the journey they do i think but like by the end of it Angu is a captain of Detritus is a sergeant and of course they've had all the adventures in all the books and mm. you know it like that could have happened to him too and, and, it, and it didn't because he you know he got cut off before it uh, like before he even had the chance to, to really start in the watch which is um, yeah it's very sad he's like the the wash from Fly- Firefly of uh, <laughs> of the City Watch yeah <laughs> um, yeah it's it is very sad the way like that progresses and especially because you know he is trying so hard to uh, be be the best dwarf he can be, and I really think that um, Terry Pratchett hammers home the idea that um, the higher you climb, the more people are going to um, you know view you in a certain light. Because there's that moment where they're in the Beggars Guild, and I just remember there's this one line where um, Anguus thinks in her mind, uh, Queen Molly was the first person who didn't seem surprised by the fact that there was a woman in the watch. Yeah, and they have a line that says, um, "The Beggars Guild were an equal opportunities uh, non-employment uh, mm-hmm. organization, I think it was, and they're literally the bottom of the rung, and that's where it's acceptable. You know, it's acceptable to be whatever you want to be, so long as it's at that very, very yeah. bottom of the ladder. And then the perfect contrast to that is the." high society party that Vimes attends and they're literally talking about you know how terrible they are how great it would be to expel them all and then Vimes is goading them on by saying we should literally like you know just 
got them at the end of a pike and you know and people are kind of shocked at first but then they kind of go along with it it's um it's interesting that uh in this book for a lot of the time uh people seem embarrassed by uh whenever they say something that's a little bit racist but so in equal measure there's a lot of people who will blatantly right in the face of people say you know uh sorry species things um i think I'm trying to think of an example here now there's definitely one example in the alchemist guild where one of them says oh well you people would know all about gold when yeah yeah ask them about gold and um i'm trying to figure out is this a case of just you know the more um forthcoming way people treat species in this book or is that maybe a commentary on you know the racism that people weren't even aware was racism like you know earlier in uh this, this century like i mean oh this was in the 90s i mean still and still now in a lot of I, ways mm. but yeah I, I think it's that where it's just like could he sort of put out by him saying you people and you later have the running joke about everyone knows what they say about dwarves mm. he's like what well, i don't <laughs> um but the people who are saying this don't even presume it's offensive because yeah. they've so normalized their own prejudices of the other species that they assume like well you must you must think this about yourself too you know mm. um <laughs> that's interesting that Cuddy is like the perfect example to kind of question that because he questions everything actually yeah, yeah so what so like Sergeant Cohen was starting to get the the nasty feeling that like uh, Lance uh, Constable Cuddy was clever and you can kind of see that as like something a slave driver like in the cotton fields or something would actually say I can see yeah, that. yeah. and I love how actually quite often dwarves are actually compared to you know African Americans as well with I, the, I always the parallel with dwarves is uh, that I kept hearing with Jews really? Yeah, because of the, oh um, yeah, I suppose the, the that makes stereotype sense. about them like being you know money grubbing or or gold grubbing. I feel like there's a lot more uh, like it. It does make sense in that context, you know. But uh, I feel like there's a lot of references towards them. You know, I, the stereotypes, the African American stereotypes, seem to apply in this book to dwarves. I thought, and it's it's very parallels, but I would have thought trolls would have been would have been closer. I would uh, have and I may be driven by the fact that in the animated version of a uh, soul music, um, Lias speaks with a sort of black like jazz you know smoky jazz man's uh, oh, right. um voice but because the like the stereotypes that tend to be around the affair is not not just used but um it's not only the, the like the gold or money thing but the idea of them being kind of weaker or uh you know more effeminate or like weaker physically than 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 whites and of course dwarves are smaller so they're te- you know they're literally looked down on for that and kind of pushed around whereas um, the like racism against uh, I'm speaking in really broad strokes traditionally against uh, black people has often gone in the other excess where they're seen as like like too manly or too physical and you know often kind of like talk about in like bestial terms and obviously trolls are they're bigger and stronger than humans and you know as you you were saying earlier in so many ways these two species have such like uh, natural advantages towards humans that it's almost like the humans try and uh, bring them back down to size with, with the mm. prejudice you know yeah trolls are much stronger and yet they're kind of mocked for being stupid and things like that but i think those parallels are very broad like here the mm, you know absolutely the prejudice is just sort of i would say it's just more a general commentary on how racism functions within a diverse city you know mm. within a within a space where you are running into different cultures and different races every day and probably working with them or seeing them and yet can still hold these 
prejudices, uh, prejudices, prejudices, um, and uh, preconceptions and misconceptions and so on. Well, one thing about city life that really jumped out to me too is there's so much about money here um, in a way that I don't think is really been a factor certainly not in the the last few discord books where i mean it the book all but begins with carrot writing to his family about how he's just got a promotion to mm. as a corporal and he's getting you know he'll get like five five an extra five dollars you have vimes spending all of his money on the uh, watchman's widows that is a but, heartbreaking and, and how, scene just to say that that yeah, is an absolutely yeah. heart-wrenching scene when that happens <laughs> and the idea of him kind of um you know his his boots theory of economics with the fact yes. that like civil can sort of afford to be poor by being really rich mm. and the poor person will always be caught on the uh, you know the tin end of the capitalist wedge because they'll keep having to buy cheaper things to replace the cheaper things that that break um even the scene where they go into the dwarf diner and you have all the, the price list out and rat and ketchup is worth uh, the ketchup is worth almost as much as the rat because of you know no one wants to eat rats without uh, without ketchup uh, like just there's a lot about how money you know is this kind of oil that uh, greases the wheels of the big mm. machine that is Ankh Pork and how it's it's you know essential to it being run and how it's a like factor for you know for good and for ill in, in so many people's lives in a way that like it certainly didn't come up in Lords and Ladies where Lankra is this, you know, village economy, whatever, where they have a castle falling apart and... They like, trade a hen for, like, a, a new wig or something like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, Omnia in Small Gods is a theocracy where, mm. uh, you know, again, it, it never really comes up. So it, it was just, it was really interesting to see it here because in the same way that the speciesism, racism stuff feels like a, a good extension of just Ang Morpork functioning as this way to talk about cities in general, mm. you would be like, you know, uh, it would be a shallow depiction of city life that didn't involve the like all pervading influence of money. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing I found really odd was the fact that um, this is a book that focuses like largely on racism or speciesism. And uh, one thing that isn't highlighted at all is any inequality in the pay for uh dwarves or trolls or anyone you know it's it's not yeah. it's not mentioned but you'd expect it to be it, it is touched on once where Cuddy and detritus are sniping at one another and Cuddy is slagging detritus about how he can't count and he says that like searching colon will do him out of money mm. when it comes to payment because he'll realize that he won't know the difference between you know what he should be getting and what he is getting but i think that's more like Cuddy's sort of taking a dig at detritus there, there's no, there's never any indication that that actually is the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah, that's it's it's uh, an unusual uh, thing to leave out. I, I, no, I don't know. Maybe it's just not something that didn't fit. It just didn't fit naturally into it. But um, I, if if it was me and I was dealing with this now, and maybe it wouldn't work, and maybe that's why I'm like not such a great writer. But maybe I, I think I would have put in a paragraph or two just about how oh some humorous way dwarves or trolls complaining about why uh, why aren't we getting paid the same amount as you as well it costs more to make bigger armour or something like that you know so, something yeah. I don't know It's well it's interesting too that's pointed out to the two people who have like you know little or no speciesism are veterinary and divler um, mm. 
and like veterinary just sees them like oh if they help the city run and circulate the money yeah grand and Dibbler sees them as extra customers yeah um and if people, some of the people who hold the most are the uh, the old money, the aristocrats who don't really have to worry about how economy functions because they're just always going to have money. Exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's 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 like it's both like a factor for inequality and also in a weird way a sort of great equalizer. Yeah. In it. Do you know one thing I found very interesting was Vimes' attitude towards gargoyles. Oh yeah. In yeah. the fact that uh, you know he had low. It's one of the few species people whatever where he's emphatically i like these people you know and it's it's so rare that it stood out to me and by, by the next book they've hired a, a gargoyle yeah. and watchman but um i found like at first i thought oh well that's that's a nice bit of character development but then i thought about it and i realized actually it's a it is a kind of exceptionally racist kind of way to look at things because the only reason like vimes likes him is because you know, you know, they're different species and, uh, you know, different whatever, but it's only because they're completely out of sight, completely out of mind. It's the only reason he likes them. Whereas trolls and dwarves, you know, they, you know, they're insight. Admittedly, they cause trouble, but immediately he doesn't like them that way. So, yeah. Um, he has the same thing with wizards, though, where he says about how, oh, like, they true. don't break my laws, they break the laws of reality and I don't have to worry about that. That is So I, I think, again, it's like misanthropy of just dealing with people and crimes all day that is anyone who is, is 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 outside of that is fine by him but you're right there is that sense of you know he doesn't wonder well why are they so divided do gargoyles like want want to see more people or you know should they be like you know a, 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 like a, a integrated into Angmore Park society no it's grand because they're sort of outside the mainstream they're not causing trouble and that's that's okay but obviously that I mean that implicitly changes by Peter Clay because then you have a Constable Downsprout is uh, the Gargoyle Watchman they have. Who he still, I think that. he still. Um, it, it's definitely not mentioned that he doesn't like him, and I think he seems to have a good rapport with him. So mm-hmm. I suppose that's a good character. Element. I always find it unusual, actually, when I read that. Oh, uh, Vimes gets on quite well with the Wizards because I wouldn't have thought that. <laughs> you know, if you put Vimes in a room room with Wizards, I just kind of imagine it would have the same effect effect as uh, the party that he has in with like all the upper class because. You know, wizards are always described as these really pompous, like overly clever uh, people who don't really do much. And I suppose the key thing there is they don't really do much, and that's yeah, the main thing. I think, but the but, arist- arist- uh, aristocracy don't really seem to do much either. No, so but I, I think the difference is they're both sort of divided from uh, actual society, and with the aristocracy, it annoys volumes that they still have these really um, prejudiced, bigoted, ill-taught-out views on a society they actually barely interact with in their mansions. But I think the wizards, like, wouldn't even... It wouldn't even occur to them to have any views on what's going on in Warburg. <laughs> All that matters is what's going on in Unseen University. Yeah, that's you true, know? Yeah, yeah. So he probably appreciates that, like, they're not in- encroaching on his turf, so to speak, by saying, like, here's what you should be doing about the trolls, fine, sorry, you know? Like, this is a disgrace, um... They're just whatever going about unseen university and, and happy enough there. And Joe, can I bring up something? This is going to seem very tangential, and it's just a thought that occurred to me. It is really interesting that wizards in these books are central to like the city when you compare it to all other fantasy. Now, this doesn't. Really, I don't really have a major point here. I just found it really interesting thinking about it that like all of the wizards, literally all of them, are based in the middle of the city, surrounded by politics that they are completely 
you know, oblivious to. And it would make sense in in that context to have them like, let's have Unseen University like on a mountain or something like mm-hmm. that, you know, it just um that that just seems makes more sense to me. It's just it's it's a bizarre thing, I think, just to have it smack in the middle of the city. Um, yeah, usually in a lot of fantasy a wizard is a you know, a hermit type character mm-hmm. who lives mm-hmm. away off somewhere and they're about in the city and yet very isolated from it from a self-imposed point of view yeah. that they, they just can't be arsed doing. I suppose it gives lots of uh, material for a fish out of water sort of scenario which is almost every storyline that the wizards have but yeah. uh, it's just a thought I was just thinking that yeah. um, so what do you think of guns then eh sexy sexy guns that give you all the power in the world yeah. well I'm going to be over to I'll, I'll, be, I'll be firing a gun for the first time in my life uh, in a few days when, <laughs> when I go over to America um, so. because you can because that's what you do in America do you, is yeah. this just what you think happens when you get to America you go through customs and they hand you a gun <laughs> um, well well, they didn't do it when I went over to New York but I was technically an immigrant then so they one now I'm just a tourist ah. so I, you know I'm, I'm <laughs> A free gun, whatever you want, like Jack Daniels. Now, now, now I'm a tourist, so I'm more lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, but the, yeah, I, I think that I've heard it said, and I've never seen this tease out, and I really like to that this book like has wildly different reactions in American and you know European uh, Discworld uh, really? fans because obviously we have very different gun laws, and um, particularly in like Ireland and UK. You know, in Ireland, we have an unarmed police force. Like, uh, you know, next, like hardly, uh, very few people have guns. Um, in the UK, they actually are around this time. I'm not sure if it's for, it was after the, the Dun, was it Dunblane massacre? The, the, when the, the guy shot a lot of people in the school, they, they brought in, uh, like they really revamped their, their firearms laws after that and oh, made it a, lo- a lot more restrictive than it was. Um and obviously in America, it, it you know it is such a big part of the culture for most people. So that like this this book obviously has a very negative view of the of guns and what mm-hmm. they do to people, and even the, the like the gun itself, the sort of insidious one ring like. I was about logic. to say it's yeah, like the yeah. one ring. Yeah, it's very it, interesting. That it, it gets the people. Uh, does echo the arguments of you know guns rights activists where like it's it's it literally says oh, but like guns don't kill people people kill people mm. and you know tries to take uh take uh, remove itself from any sense of responsibility um so yeah i've heard it say that like this provokes very different reactions among like american fans and european fans but i've never seen it teased out like i've never like read an account of an you know an american discord fan who maybe took umbrage with this because they feel like they're a responsible gun owner and it's a mm. it's a right average. I'd be very interested to you know you well, to, yeah. to read it from that point of view and to see how much of this book is still accessible and you know entertaining and still resounds with them despite mm. that, or whether it you know it's their least favorite Discworld book because it has this central argument that that runs that runs contrary to uh, what they believe. Like personally speaking, as someone who um, would be very, you know, uh, pro restrictions on uh, like on, on uh, guns and uh, on like ownership of guns. I I, I really like the the way the book does it, and Absolutely. I really think it's it, it's just a like a fun, unique idea to introduce this in a fantasy setting as well. Mm. And like in a world where, as you were saying, we have wizards who live in the middle of the city. How and there's like trolls who are made of rock. How this can still be a huge 
significant force. I think Vimes thinks about it when he says like how a crossbow or you know a bow and arrow just essentially transferred your strength into something else. You know, you mm. still have to aim it and pull back the the string and so on. And uh, whereas the gun, it's it's an external power that anyone can get it and be become a killing machine through it. And they don't have to have beyond the ability to aim at people and shoot them they don't have to have like a huge amount of skill or strength or so on that you know in a, it, it transforms anyone into a potential killer in that way mm. I find I'm, I'm glad you made the comparison to uh, the one ring because I was thinking about that uh, it, it is I, I feel like it's almost deliberate just considering the, the voice that the, the gone has uh, speaking to uh, Crucis and Deeth and it's just um it's interesting that you know you know the whole idea of Lord of the Rings that I remember uh, Tolkien himself uh, denied this but everyone everyone but everyone makes the comparison that the ring is basically you know uh missiles or like uh it represents uh nuclear war stuff like that that sort of thing. And this is kind of that on a smaller scale which which works really well in this context because it's more intimate. Mm-hmm. Um it it's instead of highlighting like you know the the terror of war it's it is very much a case of like you know the terror of domestic violence and like you know gun runnings and stuff like that um yeah it's i think it does a especially good job of uh, emphasizing the almost alienating power it gives its owners uh, you know whoever's holding the gun itself um, there's that m- wonderful moment where uh, Crucis is climbing the tower the mm-hmm. Tower of Art and it's just you know he said I could literally kill anybody up here now I'm essentially a god yeah. although I did think for me that was a little funky where like there's the first time that, that line occurs where he, he talks about seeing all the lights and being up on anyone and it was like, it was like being god I, I really liked and then that motif repeats where it keeps saying it was like being god and I thought no, it's a bit no I know what you mean. Yeah. I I felt the same. Um, way. But but over like I like that scene overall. Mm. I just thought that like uh, you know God complex motif was mm. uh, hammered hammered on the head a bit. Um, I I looked at like the when Vimes gets the gun, how it sort of it, it yes. tempts him, and uh, you have the the ending which is like a homage to I think it's for a fistful of dollars where with all the the clocks mm. and when the last you know when the his uh, pocket watch which has been established earlier is is the one. That actually is the most accurate uh, timepiece in in the city. When that you know runs out, he won't be a watchman, um, and it's something that will come up again and again with Vimes of this idea of like being a watchman and the, the mental badge he has mm. being the, like the one thing that's stopping him from going rogue and becoming like a really you know uh, awful kind of um, morally dubious vigilante. And I think it's very impressive when when Carrot just you know smashes it and says it's just a device. And at that point in the book, it feels utterly convincing um, the way they built Carol up that he would be this mm. pure. But I do think, and this is one that, like I said, I really like this book, but one part where it does fall down to me is the villain switcheroo from Deet, Deet the F? I, I can't I, believe it. <laughs> I, I always said the F in my head, but you know what, whichever. I, I've never heard the audiobook version of this, so I have no idea what the pronunciation should be. But from him to Cruz's feels a bit undercooked in that it seems to rely for me at least too much on this idea of the gun being a corrupting force that you know Vime speculates that like uh, the East came to Cruces and confessed to him and Cruces was you know um, 
like didn't didn't have anything in mind like didn't think oh I'll kill him and take the gun but once he held the gun that idea mm-hmm. took hold of him and then he ended up you know killing uh, because um, but, but like like I, I get that and the fact that you see the gun tempt Vimes shows that and the fact that he you know he muses about how Crucis wasn't even probably a bad man at heart and it's just his power like that uh, again depending on how much you like that idea of seeing the gun as this corrupting force really works but like with with Vimes when he has the gun right the gun is appealing to him isn't just hey shoot a load of people it'll be fun it's mm. it's sort of appealing to something he wants anyway like mm. kind of enforcing law on the city um, taking back the, the power uh, for like the watchman which he, he feels it should be you know he has the part where he gets really angry at veterinary that he gave the gun to the assassins the guard not the watch and look what's happened and the previous run-ins he's had with the Assassin's Guild, who are a bunch of aristocrats, and with the other aristocrats, and a sense of these people who consider themselves above the law, and this gives him the power to be able to actually enforce that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, there's that. And then you have Deeth, who is this... Um, I mean, I really love the trope in general in fiction of the sort of aristocrat gone to seed at a loose end in this crumbling mansion haunted by the visions of past greatness, harking back to this sort of non-existent golden age like i like so i i really like that bit at the start talking about him and mm. um, but again you have him where he has this fantasy of one to bring back a king to the city and turn the clock back a little bit it'll be much better and to go and you know corrupt him into doing that in a way but cruises we never find out what his what he really wants and what his motivation is you know mm. he sort of like makes a stab at it at the end when he seems to appeal to carrot that oh carrot you're the king and he starts calling him sire and says he doesn't want to hurt him but we've never unlike Deeth we haven't gone into any detail with Crucis of why he thinks the city would be better with a king like like he's the head of the assassin's guild life's pretty sweet for him at the moment mm-hmm. you know um, so he like his motivations aren't really teased out it, it seems to for me at least it relied too heavily on the idea of well the gun corrupts everyone so it you know it corrupted him and drove him to this but it's like okay but what 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 is it is what is it corrupting what is it driving him to extremes to do that he maybe wanted to do anyway mm. in a way that it was with vimes and the east we never find out um and and that just felt a, like a bit disappointing for me uh after as i said like i, I liked the bits with deep to start um well um, yeah and and considering as well i mean the whole like a lot of the, the book that said deals with like species as prejudice and this um, misguided idea of turning the clock back and in the old days the city wasn't like this with all this riffraff around so the each motivation seemed to fit you know uh, basically complement that whole that whole idea and those teams perfectly and Crucis doesn't really have motivations for to be underscored by that mm. well I think uh, the first time I read this book, I would have agreed with you because I remember, as I said earlier, I felt a little underwhelmed by the whole idea of it's it's just people with a gun. You know, I I don't see how that tops a dragon or a golem in any way. But I have to say, this time around, I actually I it wasn't the same case for me. I actually thought that worked really really well. Um, there's that moment where Vimes he's really frustrated about. Um, at least when the dragon like flew away, it was still a dragon. You still know who it was. And uh, when they want to give chases, like give chase to who? The person could have just thrown the mm-hmm. gone away, and then they'd just be another person in the crowd. And I think that's 
it's 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 almost what we don't know and what we can't really um quantify in this book is what is really scary there's like there's points in this book that i think are like it's it, it never transfers into horror but there's some really unsettling moments like there's there's that moment in the sewer which is fantastic when detritus and um Cuddy are walking down there and they're absolutely terrified to go forward because they can't see ahead of them yeah. and they think that the gunman could be there and you know I've never been in a situation where um, you know I've had to deal with anyone with a gun um, so I have no idea how what that's like but it comes across like the fear genuinely comes across and they're like what it's actually like to have to deal with mm. someone like that and I was really impressed by that um, in terms of uh, transferring like the gun and the entire villainy to over to uh, Cruces part of the appeal for me I think is not really knowing like you're right we do get like kind of flimsy excuses as to why he's taking up the mantle and he's like shooting at people and for me it essentially boils down to you know power you know like yes he is in a position of power but he's given a, a tool that gives him more power than literally anybody in the city and it's it's a very black and white, very simplified version, but I think it literally just goes to his head. And when he's saying all this to Carrot, I don't really believe him when he's saying we could, um, you know, we, we need a monarchy again. I don't buy that at all. I think he's just like repeating um, Edward Deeds' words because, you know, that's what he thinks will get him out of this situation. Yeah. I think it's literally just a case of, you know, the gun is corrupting and, you know, he's kind of getting on board with the idea of um, let's uh, get rid of all the trolls, dwarves, whatever, but that's completely 100% fueled by, like, the madness that the gun has, like, put in. Like, if you took that out of it, like, if it wasn't a gun, and if it was just a, you know, if you just took the gun out of the plot entirely, he wouldn't have become the villain. He'd just, like, comfortably sit back and still be the bastard that he is in the Assassin's, like, guild. Yeah. That's my take on it now, personally. Yeah, yeah, I I know, uh, I... I, I understand what you mean and actually I hadn't thought about that idea that he's just sort of BSing Carol at the end to, to uh, like in the hope of, of, of appealing to his you know any I, any hope that he might have of becoming king but I just think it's where the sort of like the idea of just corrupting one ring like force becomes a bit too much of a plot cr- crutch to me and that like if you look at the one ring whenever that tempted people in Lord of the Rings it was always based on something you know Boromir and later Faramir get tempted because Gondor is on the front line of this war against Mordor they feel this will give us the power to turn back the enemy you know um, Gandalf and Galadriel get scared of the idea of being tempted by it because they know how powerful they are anyway and that like this would allow them to kind of like basically rule over the uh, the whole country and restore like restore order over uh, you know Sauron and Mordor but then essentially impose a sort of uh, dictatorship of their own you know, there's never someone who's just like the the closest I suppose it comes is is Gollum maybe that you know where he's a, a sort of one ring junkie and he's, yeah. uh, but I I feel like that's part of the point with him is that he has degenerated to such a degree where he's forgotten what he even wants it in the first place. He just mm-hmm. wants it for wanting it. And Crucis obviously hasn't got to that stage yet. He only you know he only gets to to go in halfway through the book. Um, and while like I said earlier, like I would consider myself pro-gun control and I think they're like you know oh guns don't kill people people kill people argument is a bit facile I think I, I still see where it's coming from in the sense that like if you had a gun now I would be a little unsettled but I know like you're my friend and you're a stable person I wouldn't think <laughs> oh my god he could just shoot me or go into the next room or sh- and, and shoot someone else like I, you know I don't think that I, like 
in, instantly makes a like a killer out of someone ex Nihilo. Mm. You know, there there's got to be something there that it that it's playing upon, and we mm. never find out what that what that is with Crucis. And I get what you mean about like that that's sort mm. of the, like you know the the point of the gun that I can transform anyone in this way. But, but just, it, it it feels uns, it unsatisfying for me because the you know the sense of Vimes musing that like oh he's probably a good man and this only happened when D came to him would still work if we got a reason why why he's doing this mm. you know I think um, why it hit home for me is I was thinking of you know the situations where I can't think of I, I should be able to think of one off the top of my head but it's just slipped my mind at the moment the likes when uh, you get like a rogue gunman goes in and just like massacres a bunch of people and for whatever reason he gets shot down and we never learn his motives like you know this is a person who they'll look into their background and it's like oh he was just a quiet person worked like did his job you know mm-hmm. had a loving family or whatever and then one day he just went off the rails and nobody knows why it just happened that's kind of how I view uh, Crucis in this situation but Crucis is like he's like a rich um, you know big figure in the city mm. usually these like lone gunman shooters I mean really general here um, are as you said very kind of ordinary mundane people and maybe that's partly what drives some of them to do it is this uh, you know this frustration of feeling like they're not achieving anything in life mm. I feel like if he is going to do anything he should have some kind of agenda because why would he risk upsetting a status quo that seems to be relatively beneficial for him mm. you know so far maybe it could be you could compare it to you know some uh, high power politicians like who've just gone a bit power mad I'm but, sure I can't think of any examples but of that. No, no, no. Our politicians like, <laughs> there are none of those. Yeah, got a killing spree with a gun, you know. Um, That's true, but it's it's more like it's it's not like I, I I'm not taking it literally. It's just more emblematic of their views on like you know the notion of having that power. Yeah, but what's he using that power for? You know, like he and there's one point where he scoffs at Edward's plan about killing guild leaders, and we never find out what his plan is. Mm. And yeah, like I I get what you mean that like. That there's certainly space there to explore. Oh, what about when a powerful person gets this, like with the one gun in the city that makes them even more powerful? As we see with Vimes briefly at the, uh, at the very end, but like with Vimes, you get an idea of what what he would want to do with that and why it would tempt him. And we don't know what that is with Crucis. Like why why is he? What does he want to change? What does he want to go? We never even find out whether he's particularly speechless or not, you know. Or now that's what I mean. Like this is this is why I think that works because the whole point is not to know. It's just like this is just someone who's gone off the rails, and it's terrifying because we don't know why. I don't think that's satisfying, though. I mean, that wouldn't be that, satisfying. That's that's fair. Like that um, wouldn't be satisfying in real life, and I don't think it's a satisfying view. But that's, that's exactly. I, I don't the point. think it's a satisfying view. Yeah, but I don't think it's a satisfying view of how murder works you know just to shrug your shoulders and say like okay yeah there there are some cases where we'll never know but like no one ever says oh there is no reason or you know we, we shouldn't even try to find out like mm-hmm. this isn't real life this is a work of fiction this is explicitly for like making some sort of sense or kind of plumbing these mysteries that we won't find out about you know um like imagining them in ways that are more coherent and more engaging and you know more uh, resonant maybe than the kind of, than the like uh, chaos of trying to make sense of tragedies we encounter in the news so for me it's like dissatisfyingly random when you have the ability to make it not random you know mm. um and particularly when in other points in the book you're seeing like the factors that that uh, corrupt people to um, make use of this horrible weapon you know mm. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I like yeah, it's just that I said jumped out at me because it wasn't even something I remembered from. Like I remember being kind of impressed with the who done it part of the switcher villain switcheroo that you know from the very start it's detailed to gun and then mm. you, they find this other body and like when you realize it isn't him even though i, I remember it was cruises i thought like oh this is so you know so mm. clever that like now that the whole like now the reader is just as clueless as the watchers whereas the whole time we've been sort of one step ahead of them and slightly assured about that and now we're dropped down to their level we don't know who it is and mm. i said that bit where vimes thinks about how it could be anyone and you always knew the dragon was there, but I didn't remember. Uh, I, I, I was assumed there would be some explanation mm. of of why I'd like to tease out why Crucis does it beyond the kind of generic power mania. Yeah. Uh, that's. I think we'll just uh, agree to disagree. I kind of. I, I I I like it now, but it's fair enough. It's yeah. totally fair for it not to be satisfying. Um, one thing that I do like, just bringing it back to when Vimes had the gun, is I really like the idea of I know I know it's um the fact that Vimes is constantly struggling with himself of what he could potentially be and he's always trying to be the the better person and at the end of it you know um Carrot has that line where he's uh or sorry Vimes says you know I could have been just like him and Carrot says oh no sir you put it down and even though I feel like the intention there might have been you know just to reassure us oh yes well that means Vimes a good man but it doesn't, to me, it doesn't feel that way at all. Like, when he says that bit, I feel like when Vimes hears Carrot say, no, sir, you put it down, I'd imagine in Vimes' head, he's like, but I really wanted to pull that trigger, yeah, dude. Like, yeah. I don't think that reassures him. I think he's still struggling with the idea of what he could have done. Yeah. And I constantly feel that the entire way, like, even through the ending, I'm like, he just barely, like, the only reason he put it down was because Carrot told him to. And that ties in really, really well with the ending with Veterinary. Mm-hmm. When um, this is something actually that I misremembered uh, when I read it the first time. It's only this is the first time I got it clear in my head. I had it in my head that when Carrot addresses Veterinary, that it literally a case of, oh, I don't want to be king. No, I just want to be a watchman. That's yeah. all I want to be. But it's much clearer in this that in actual fact he's doing what is literally best for the city. You know, he's neither a guard or a king. He's just a policeman. You know, man yeah. in the city. You know, so um, although I feel in his his discussion with veterinary at the end, it's like part like his sort of leverage to, to you know introduce these really big changes um, into the watch. And I, I I said to you before we start recording, I had forgotten that like after guards guards when they well they don't really save the city from the dragon, but you know they, they're sort of you know given the credit for it mm. that the watch is still you know uh, looked on as a joke by the rest of the city in this and it's only at the end of this book that they you know begin to become this mm. um really uh important relatively well regarded piece of city and uh, like those changes carrots getting veterinary juice are really radical and i feel the whole time the implicit threat is there of well he Carrot could take over the city exactly to, yeah. like, you know but he and, and not he's to. yeah he's saying to you veterinary yet and he chooses not to it uh, going back to what you said about Vimes they're going down I like I think and I can't think of another example right now but I think this is like a recording feature with Terry Bratchett where he shows like that the line between being good and being bad is both really small razor thin and really huge you know doing something mm-hmm. like putting the gun down rather than firing it is a tiny thing and yet it's a huge thing because it separates him from being someone who who has actually killed someone Absolutely. likewise Carrot you know knowing that he 
could be king and could like get everyone to do what he says around the city and not doing it but also sort of using this to leverage veterinary into doing something he feels is for the good of the city is again this like razor tin line he's walking between abusing that sort of supernatural charisma he has and using it for good mm. and it's it's wonderful because it ties into that line that he has uh, where he says that people should be good because that's who they are not just because uh, you know Corporal Carrot tells mm-hmm. them to be good and you know that's I love that it, it never really clicked with me the first time I read it like the correlation between the two I was like wow he really is just doing his best to make sure people are the best person they can be without essentially being a dictator because uh, you know how um, every time kings are mentioned before by the watch they kind of say well you know we had some good kings but yeah. then like it kind of came to the last draw everything like everyone remembers like the good kings but then they forget that like there was a decline and everything went terrible that's sort of how I view what might potentially happen if mm-hmm. if Carrot became king because yes he probably would make a really good king but you know he'd be telling people to be good and you know it'd kind of be like um, happy thoughts happy thoughts it'd be like Genoa under Lilith exactly yeah. yeah yeah they're literally just trying to he's trying to make them like be the people he wants them to be without them being their own people yeah so it's yeah it's an interesting kind of um, kind of character development for Carrot but in terms of character development let's talk about Vines for a bit because as we all know he is our favourite character uh, yeah time. although I was about to say I had forgotten that you know like um, I'm sure you've heard uh, I, I brought it up when, when me and Rose did Garrett's Guards when I'm sure you've heard this that when Pratchett was writing Garrett's Guards Carrot was going to be the main character mm. but he sort of needed someone who would be like a more point of view character of what the uh, I suppose like what the normal what the status quo of Ank Park was before this fairy tale hero came in mm-hmm. and that's how he came up with Vimes and then Vimes ended up sort of almost accidentally becoming the main character through that and that's true for most of the Watch series and it's particularly then as they go on the much later ones are very much about Vimes like you know Nightwatch being probably the biggest example where mm. You know, he's in a different time and none of the other guys are there. Yeah. yeah. But like I think we go about forty pages for a while in this book without seeing Vimes. This is very much Carrot's book if any of them if any of the what series are. If any of them are, but yeah. it is still it's it's the closest we come to Carrot's book, but I think they share the book really, because I, I I'm I'm more as is always the case when Vimes is there, I'm always going to be more invested in his like Oh powers. oh yeah, like Vimes is certainly like a huge character in it, but I I mean I had always thought of that that like Vimes is the main character of all the watch books and you know Carrot's the supporting character and like mm. having that idea in my head of oh it's funny because he originally intended Carrot to be the main ca- character this is the closest we come to actually getting him as a main character you know he drives the action towards the end Vimes when he goes off to get married after he goes on his uh, massive um, bender leaves the scene for ages and like it's it's Carrot who rallies the whole city and it's just interesting because I don't think we ever really get that again. Like it's you know Vimes is like you know, undisputedly the main character of, as far as I can remember, all of the watch books after this, mm. um, and how this book actually has Kara turning down a much bigger role in the city, and on a meta textual level, it's as if he turns down <laughs> a much bigger role in the city watch series. Interesting. You know? Yeah, I will say I do think that we get a little bit more character development in the fifth ele- uh, elephant when. Um, himself and Angua's relationship kind of hits a rocky stage yeah because yeah. it's it's it because there isn't really a lot of room for development for Carrot is the thing because he is just this shining diamond in the rough like who just like he's just an 
inarguably good person, like incredibly strong, you know, in the hands of a less experienced writer, he'd be a very dull character. We get a lot of uh, development for Carrot in this book, um, some of it quite unexpected actually, but um, like for example his relationship with Angua, it's, it is kind of a simplified relationship, um, I remember not really thinking much of it the first time I read it, but because there actually is development in his character this time around, in that he has a difficult time, you know, trying to woo the actually now that I think about it it's not really that difficult a time and actually it's a pretty it's a pretty terrible depiction of women actually there's that was that one moment where um, Gaspode is talking to her when she's a werewolf he's like he's your human now like you'll go back to him but you know if, at least if you choose to go back to him you did it by choice you know you're essentially his dog which is well I want to get to that because mm-hmm. um, I do find it really sweet when he's walking around and she thinks about him trying to gift wrap a city um, <laughs> and all that other men would, would give flowers and uh, and things like that and I, and I find it interesting that in in light of their like like that bit comes early he clearly fancies her very early mm-hmm. on but then later you had that like uh, wonderful bit where with um, where she sees the list of names in Vimes's room and assumes that it's mm. prostitutes and Carrot like is probably as angry as you ever see him in the book like grabs her by the wrist you know um, and uh, gets you know gets called in to kind of put, go in and put her straight in the, uh, on it and even when she apologizes afterwards he still seems sort of you know pissed off he's saying oh, yeah, don't worry you know moving mm. moving swiftly on um, so I, I think it's like like it's sort of interesting that 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 happens after they've established, you know, he clearly like fancies her, but, um, the business of the, like the, he's, he's your human. He, he, I think he actually says he's your master. I mean, like they essentially have a Dom sub relationship. Like, like in a way that's, that's like never comes out and says that. I don't know if when Carrot and Angua get into bed where they get the letter out um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I like, uh, I get up to like all sorts of kinky stuff, but, that essentially uh, is is that like that like that's like their inner sexual relationship because for people who see them on the street you know like Angua as we see in this book and as we'll see uh, in future books can very much take care of herself very like tough and tough minded person mm. um, who you know who's like certainly a lot more skeptical uh, and sarcastic than Carrot is and is often unafraid of saying you know showing that in public in front of him like sort of trying to pierce the balloon of his you know, uh, rosy-eyed view of, of, mm. of the world. Um, but yet, when it comes right down to it, when they get into, you know, when they get into bed, when it comes down to the, the kind of nitty-gritty of the actual, like, sexual desire they have for one another and that part of their relationship, it's dumb sub kind of thing. And, it, like, if the City Watch books were the only Discworld books that um, maybe I'd be a bit more uncomfortable with this, like, male-female, uh, the central male-female relationship being like that. But the fact that they come right after, like, Lords and Ladies, where we had, like, you know, a cast of uh, some, like, three really great male main female characters all in very different types of relationships. Mm. Um, I... In, in light of that and in light of like you know the depiction of kind of women and, and relationships in other Discworld books that's very varied and often very nuanced I actually on reflection really like that he manages to sneak in what's essentially a kind of like a dom-sub relationship into um, into a book that isn't like explicitly like erotic literature or anything like that that he manages to almost normalise it in that way um, 
I'm not certain if I'd agree with you to be honest. Like I don't think there's an awful lot. That, I mean, I do get where you're coming from in terms of Angua is like a very confident and capable woman, and um, she's attracted to uh, Carrot. Who? See, this is the thing. I mean, physically, yeah, I, I get that. Like he would, he he's stronger than her. But in almost every other sense, it's um, I, I I don't know. It's 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 a it's a difficult one. It's um, it's got a lot of layers. <laughs> I think in the sense of like like sexually, ultimately, she sort of like seems to you know want to almost be uh, in, in some way sort of um, submissive to. Her. Uh, like like and you, you that comes out a lot when she's like a, a, as as a wolf like the the way the way she reacts and I I just think like and because she can still go about her day and you know be this very tough capable person and this is just mm. seems to be like what she wants in the re- relationship and because we get these other relationships that aren't like that I like it because it's it's like yeah there probably are uh rela- I don't know I'm not in one but there's probably are relationships that are like that and. You know, if that's what the people like, and if it doesn't kind of like you know leak over into their, uh, um, into one of them like you know overly controlling the other one's life outside of the bedroom, then yeah, why not? I think like Fifty Shades of Grey is probably obviously like the most like, recent famous example of going into something like that, and that was apparently hugely criticised in the BDSM community for being a really inaccurate and kind of like depiction of what's a really unhealthy relationship, mm-hmm. but sort of glamorising it as oh, but it's really sexy and it's what they want. And uh, a lot of people who were involved in that community who are kind of, you know, that's their, their fetish, that's what they're into, that's what their relationships are like. We're saying, you know, it like they would draw the line where someone is actually stalking you or running your life or so on. That's where, like, it's no longer sexy. It's just mm. incredibly, like, unhealthy, you know, horrible behavior that shouldn't be tolerated because it's under this veil of, oh, this is attractive. And I feel like this... This never does that with Angu and Carrot. You know, it's it's very much their their desire is you know in this relationship, but in terms of like how they, um... I think if in that situation, just thinking about it now, it would probably be a bit more ambiguous because if you think about it, Angua presumably because she talks about previous partners she's had would be more experienced in the world and the ways of the flesh mm-hmm. and uh, whereas Carrot I think it's implied that he's a virgin at this point yeah. so he was completely and utterly naive so odds are I'd imagine that you know he'd probably be the one in the more submissive role but she definitely is because that's both literally saying he's your master and you get like other bits like where her, but tail, the fact that, like, her she... tail is wagging when she, when, when, when she looks at you know when she looks at him when she's a wolf and things like that um, and, and I know I, like I know what you mean like like I think it's kind of fluid because, um, you know, as you say, yes, that's kind of her instinct, her like, and she, but she fights it, like, you know, because like she's, uh, the fact that like she's both a wolf and a person, maybe she mm-hmm. can be both like, you know, dominating and submissive at the same time and kind of like flicks between the two. Like she isn't happy, obviously, about the idea of being a submissive person. And you can see that in like every aspect of her being. But uh, and the one case where uh, she is kind of feeling instinctively that she is enjoying it, she fights it. You know, it's uh, it's. I think I think I agree with you. I just think it's it's more. It's it's not very black and white. I think it's it's very complicated. The relationship. Yeah. 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 So, um, 
one thing, a small thing about Anya, I felt there was a small bit of a missed opportunity that she's lodging with Miss Mrs. Cake, and she never, uh, we we never see her interact with Ludmilla, Mrs. Cake's werewolf daughter. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, it, it just feels sort of odd because it, he explicitly says it's it's Mrs. Cake, and you know we've only what like three or four books back. Like had a like you know a, a fairly prominent minor character in that book be a werewolf uh, of um so uh, yeah not a huge thing but it just felt sort of odd and a missed opportunity that um, I'd imagine um it, I I imagine that if they tried to include it it would have felt a bit too on the nose too very much too much a case yeah. of like well just a, too much uh, like um look how at home uh, Angua is here it's just kind of here's kind of a throwaway it's like oh here's a place where Angua can be like you know not judged by people sure you'd all remember that if you read Reaper Man <laughs> yeah yeah, that, yeah that's true uh, it's just there is a part later where she talks about how werewolves can always recognise that are werewolves and mm. she doesn't think it'll work out with Kara her and the watch in general because like she'll never be able to function among normal people so it, it seems odd in like that, that like yeah, we yeah. know she's living in a house with another werewolf probably unless I don't know uh, what's is it? Lupine is the, is the were the other werewolf in Reaper Man? Do I think so? Yeah, yeah. I don't think like him and Ludmilla are. They're not. Um, they're not uh, implied to have eloped or anything, are they? Well, it, they, I don't think uh, it's implied anything. I think it's just implied that they hook up and that's it. So I think it kind of. I mean, I always have it in my head at that point that yeah, they probably have eloped. Yeah, that they're like running in like the hills at odd times of the night, um, but. Um, yeah, I think it's it's just open to interpretation. So, in this situation, I just imagine that like oh, Terry Pratchett couldn't fit it in, so it's kind of like oh well, we'll leave it out and leave it open to people's interpretation, which is mm-hmm. totally feasible in this situation. Um, actually, do I have anything else on character? I'm sure I do. Do you know what I found really interesting in this? The metaphor of the Clockwork Soldier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they use that a couple of times, and it's um, it is interesting the fact that it's uh, you know. I think it sort of plays into the idea of gun control as well in that um, Vimes is constantly fighting against the idea that he's not just someone who can be told what to do Mm -hmm. without like you know judging for himself whether or not he should be doing it and I love the fact that Veterinary absolutely banks on that yeah (laughs) I I love the fact that it goes wrong in this one Mm. like and and he he realises it when he realises Vimes is a bunch of wall and I I, I suspect it's something we talked about before and it's probably not as relevant here but the, as, as they go on Veterinary becomes for my taste at least a little too omnipotent yeah um, and, and at Ferris Pratchett seems to recognise it with a lot of them and he, he recedes further into the, the background of it but I like the way he is here where like it's clear he's incredibly competent and intelligent and in some ways he's one of the very few characters who can just see above the prejudice and see the big picture of what's right for the city mm. and yet at the same time can still make mistakes where he obviously um uh like his his, his ultra pragmatism of how the guilds works lead him to dismiss the watch as you know this kind of uh drunken like Ill, you know ill-equipped uh, vestige of an earlier version of the city that he can't really trust when if he was actually being a little more idealistic he would say well you know uh, it, it's the the watch should be tasked with things like getting rid of the gun and so on mm. and that would have worked um, yeah and how he just yeah yeah how he tries to manipulate Vimes and it does go that little bit wrong and were it not for you know Carrot mm. uh, and the rest of them it, it could have turned out much worse when he gets shot and tries to you know brush it off um, and but collapses yeah with collapses and I, I think like 
Pratchett seems very aware of what a big thing it is, even at this early stage, to see veterinary vulnerable like that. Like, Vine says that great line about feeling like history is unraveling in front of him. Um, and as a reader, you certainly have that line. Just go, oh, veterinaries, you know, veterinaries been been injured. Like, other than his sort of, you know, his cameo at the start of sorcery, which is on a whole different level in terms of threat that we'll probably never see again in, in any of their books. We've never seen anything like that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then it occurs just before, again, like a, a, like a relatively main character of this book, and Cuddy is, is killed. So it does... Great, give a you know he does use his like his character and his vulnerability in a great way to increase the stakes and and the tension of it late on. Um, yeah, I I like that he he relies on Vimes being a clockwork soldier and mm. doesn't get it quite right. Um, just on the topic of veterinarian, I just remembered. Yeah, there's a brief moment at the start of Reaper Man. It's it's not even vulnerability, but it's just a moment where you sort of see him crack when um, he's trying to figure out what the situation is with all the free roaming magic all over the place. And it's oh, it's a yeah, rare yeah. breaking character where he just throws his hands up in the air and says, "Look, so nobody knows what's going on." And it's it's not something you expect to see ever in terms of veterinarian mm-hmm. because he's just well known for using sarcasm to get his way or irony or whatever. Um, but even though yeah, that moment where he gets shot, it is very heart stopping. It's like, oh my god, this almost invulnerable figure has just been like taken down. I find it much more interesting in the moments where he's negotiating with Carrot. Because in those moments, you do sort of feel like he's on the defensive. It's like where, um, where when he gets shot, he do, he is somewhat still in character. He's just like physically incapacitated a little bit. Like he's like, oh, I'm, I'm fine. Then he collapses. He's like, oh, I appear to be le- uh, losing a lot of blood. You know, it's all still in character. But when he's negotiating with Carrot, he's on the defensive. It's like, what are your demands? Or like, you know, uh, you know, what exactly is it you want? And it's just it's a rare moment where you actually get to see a uh, veterinary. He has the lower hand, but it just works out. Okay. For him. He just kind of, he, because if I remember I, in particular, I remember the ending of Jingo, which is jumping ahead and it does just sort of feel like it's a bit like the Joker in the dark Knight, where it's almost like they're always going to be two steps ahead of you. Cause I think, mm-hmm. uh, in Jingo, if I remember the plot correctly, veterinary knew from the very beginning that the new uh, country was just going to sink again yeah so he well, I think he, he at least suspects it because don't they, they go via the submarine mm. like o- underneath it presumably to confirm that it's, it's going to be like that but yeah he seems to he's uh, so confident yeah. that you're just like oh he's never worried it's whereas very, in this one he actually has a moment where you're like wow he actually realizes the stakes are quite high here mm-hmm. so it's it's for that reason this book I think really stands out like it it yeah, as I say, like later on, it just kind of becomes um, he's just too omnipresent, which is so it's good that that he gets shown to the background a little bit. Yeah, it, it feels like it's a, I suppose a, a turning point for in a lot of ways for like the watch and like more work that him having had this injury, then you know the watch becomes much bigger afterwards. He you know, um, I suppose maybe he becomes a little more uh, cautious um, of that having you know set up the city to work like that metaphor he gives lines of all the wheels turning. It uh, doesn't mean that it's just going to keep on turning and turning and, and he has to just do what he's always done and he's going to have to make a few changes every now and again because unforeseen situations like a mad gunman will hmm. will occur. Um, but, sir, we were dancing around um, about... We got the Verda talking about Kara and I, Kara and, Nangua and so on. Uh, we were going to talk about Vimes there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's so much to talk about. Um, I just... I feel like I'm probably going to gush a little bit here and I'll try not to. It's just that I do gush think... Gush away, I'll clean up after you. 
Um, I just feel like he's such a well-written character. And I was, I was looking into it and I realised a great part of his character, and, and this is the case in every single book, we were discussing this beforehand, is just that he's such an underdog. Like, no matter what situation he's in, he's placed as an underdog, yet alarmingly very in control of every situation he's in at the mm-hmm. same time. You know, I mean, and a big part of that is, like, a lot of the internal struggle he has as opposed to external ones. So, obviously, in this one, we have him struggling with alcoholism. I think in the first one, in Guards Guards, which I didn't read with yourself and Rose, but if I remember rightly, it's just, you know, a vice that he has. And it isn't really viewed as a struggle, just simply a flaw. No, no, he's certainly, in Guards Guards, he's certainly, like, I think the first bit you see him, he's literally lying in the gutter, drunk, um, talking about the, the city being like a woman or the woman being like a city. Um, I, I'd say I had forgotten that he was still struggling with it in this book because I feel one of the flaws, like me, me and Rose spoke about in Garrett's Guards, is that I felt like he jumps a little too suddenly from being, you know, mm. like alcoholic to, co- to competent, determined policeman. Um, so I, I like the fact that he's still struggling with it here. That, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're never an ex-alcoholic. You're always a recovering alcoholic, taking it day by day by day. And mm. any day might be the day you, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Relapse. Mm. Um, so, so I like that we see it here that he, you know, he does relapse he after does, yeah, uh, yeah. after veterinary. Um, yeah, it seems to relieve him of his badge. Um, I also found something like is is misanthropic, uh, like pessimistic nature. It's sort of played for comedy, but in keeping with the team, with his contrast between him and the aristocrats, when he talks about, you know, oh, like, I, I'm, I'm allowed to be uh, not like dwarves and drolls because I meet them and they don't. But, like, it does come up sometimes in some really bleak ways. Like, the part where he's musing about, like, his wedding to uh, Sybil. Um, and actually, a real pity of this book is that we don't see a lot of horror. Mm. She's such a wonderful character in you know, Scars and in some of the later ones, but she, she's very much in the background here. Um, but when he's thinking about like oh like will you be happy is this love don't talk about like love love's a dodgy game for the over 40s like basically mm. you, you know you're settling um, and uh, you know like, or, or they're both settling um, and musing on like, like like life going forward and why is he even doing this and sort of in the background the whole time it's just the business of the money where you have him finding out how rich he is and him musing about his uh, like his boots theory of of economics. So what he never says, although what's you know I imagine is going on in like almost any reader and probably in the back of the character's head when he's musing, will you be happy? Do you want to get through with this? Is are you just doing this for the money, um, or or like how much of a factor is 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 the money in this? Um, and like certainly, I think it, it's you go to you see you don't see so much here because as I said, unfortunately we. We don't see a lot of Sybil, but in later books, it's clear they do like love one another very much in their own sort of odd way. And mm. um, but I just really like that, like that's so bleak and unromantic thing for a main character to be musing about. Um, it does. It is consistent the whole way through the books. Because if I'm being honest, I don't really remember. There's one moment, and I think it's in. Uh, I think it's in the Fifth Element again. Uh, there's a moment I think where they're on a coach and it gets hijacked. Mm-hmm. and there's a brief moment where Vimes who I think maybe he was punched or something I don't know he's hurt but uh, he says something along the lines of if anyone hurts Sybil and I can't remember what he says after that but the sense is the case like an absolute Armageddon will fall upon them that's the moment where I always think wow yes okay he truly loves her but it's interesting that 
there isn't a moment in this. It's not like, you know, it's not like a carrot and Angus romance where they're like, ooh, giving each other like dreamy eyes and then suddenly they just yeah. kind of fall for each other and then it's love, blah, blah, blah. With Vimes, it, yeah, it does have that sense. Like, I remember thinking in a way the ending of Guards Guards is a little bit odd because uh, I think he's just looking at Sybil and like she's smiling at him and he thinks something to himself which is really grim. Something along the lines of his, well, I'm not getting any younger. Why no, no, not? I, something like I, that. I really liked it. Something like, uh, you can't do any better and she can't do any worse. So it, it's okay. And then he compares her to a city. And mm. it, it began with him comparing the city to a woman. Oh. So like, and, and the fact that he has this very intense, slow-paid relationship with Ang Morbork, the city. <laughs> like, I, I love that he sees his, his, his wife in that way. It's um, interesting. But yeah. but yeah, but we never get it... Uh, it re- I don't think we, we get it fully resolved here when he is wondering and a part of it I think is anxiety about the idea of retiring and what is he going to do and you do have that nice scene where she's trying to pep him up and saying oh we'll get you involved in all of these committees mm. and he, you know he's clearly not that interested um, but when you have a musing about like do you really love her why are you really doing this you never have a moment in this book where you know he conf- dismisses those thoughts and confirms to himself no this is the right thing to do I love her I'm happy to be married you'll see that yeah in, in future books you'll definitely realise oh not a right for one another and you know they compliment one another so well and they can both still like live their lives like her with her kind of you know um, uh, her dragon care and him with the watch mm. like that they can be in love but at the same time not um, how would you put it like um, obscure or o- o- overshadow their own independent lives and passions yeah, um, yeah. Like, like that's all really lovely and we see all that in future books but it doesn't really get resolved here which I suppose is you know is a bit of a I suppose a bit bit of a pity and feels a bit odd given that I think we're another good couple of books away from the next watch novel and this is the one to get married so you think mm. you would see some but having said all that uh, I, I just love the fact that we even get that in the first place that we even get him mm. I, I talked about in uh, Lords and Ladies how it's a relatively rare depiction of growing old in fantasy and the risks of, of growing old and here you have like a, a rare depiction of like an unglamorous middle age you know the idea yeah of, absolutely yeah yeah and it does come across as like a very very I mean this in the nicest way possible a very bog standard like love story like you know it, it is romantic in a way in some ways but it's not an unrealistic view of romance. Like, you know, it's it's not... Um, I keep contrasting it to Carrot and Angua, who have an interesting um, relationship as well. But, you know, they have the very stereotypical kind of hero's romance. It's like, oh, I saved the girl, you know. She nearly died, but she came back to life. And, oh, it's, it's all beautiful and wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's not how relationships are. And it's great that, you know, they kind of just hook up in a way. Uh, Vimes and Sybil and as you say you can just see their love growing just from being around each other there's not one sudden moment where they think oh yes this is the girl for me why didn't I see it before it's just a gradual thing and honestly I find it it's, it's kind of hard to like it's, it's a little intangible you can't really because you can't pinpoint the moment at times it feels frustrating but maybe that's the point maybe the whole point is that like we can't really see into their lives all we need to know is that yes they do love each other which is apparent later in the books so yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah it's, it's funny with the fact that Vimes um, disappears for a good chunk of this book because the bits we get him at either end it's not like he's a minor character mm. either in the uh the resolution and exploration of the the mystery itself or in the um 
you know, in that he has like a very clear character arc here of almost a midlife crisis looking into early retirement and wondering how, how will he cope. Like all of the bits we get him feel very intense and meaningful. You know, it doesn't feel as if uh, Pratchett is writing a City Watch book and, you know, the way it's panning out, Carrot is more of the main character. He's thinking, well, I gotta have Vimes in there somewhere and we just get a few token Vimes bits. Yeah. It's, it's not like that at all. Like the bits we get of him are very uh, meaningful and develop him a lot as a as a character. Um, but yet he, he drops out of it for whatever it is, 40, you know, 40 or so pages. Um, which is just really curious, although I suppose gives a lot more impact to that kind of a, like a hoary old cliche of cop stories of the five minute retirement of, mm. you know, that's it, you're off the force. And maybe, you know, we'd have one quick montage of them like staring into space at a bar and then they're, you know, r- roused back into action later. <laughs> um, and that, that happens with him, but we get a, what in the context of this book is actually quite a considerable chunk of time without him, mm. uh, which, which makes it a bit, uh, yeah, gives Lens that a bit more oomph done if it was like, you know, that's it, Vimes. You're out of here. And then he, you know, two pages later, he's chasing Cruises. He's too short for the shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's one line in it that always jumps out at me now. I, I, I vaguely remembered it before. And when I read it again, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. It's a great defining moment, I think, for Vimes. It's, um, it's just like, you know, the narration saying a man can be defined by the things he hates. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, I think... Fime says if assassins comes just before kings and the undead so I was just thinking of that says, okay so if we take that at face value that you can actually define a man by the things he's ha- he hates and he hates first kings then the undead and then assassins it's like what can we actually take from that mm-hmm. and it's really interesting because those like I was trying to trying to work this out see what exactly those things stand for and weirdly enough they have almost like opposite values like I mean you think of kings you know um I imagine that brings the idea of uh, the idea of order or false order. You know, the order like from uh, that the aristocrats talk about, but they don't really understand. They think yeah. it's order, but it's actually chaos. Well, I suppose the artificial uh, privilege or idea of someone just being better than someone else and arbit- you know having arbitrarily been given the power to mm. over life and death and be able to change laws. That if you're the king. You know your words law, and you can do what you want, even though your only qualification is who your dad was. Yeah, um, which that actually ties yeah, in with which, the assassins yeah, like he, as well. And uh, but the the undead, it's kind of it's it's a little uh, unusual because that seems to go against it completely. I mean, just from the depictions of the undead in like the novels here, uh, we're very rarely given a situation, with the exception of Carpe Juggling, maybe we never get a situation where uh, the undead are these really vicious people. They're always just really these obliging kind of. We're just looking for equal rights sort of thing, you know. Yeah, so. well, if you count werewolves as the undead, I suppose you have fifth elephants as well. But, yeah, but you're yeah. right. I mean, overall, it is like we had the, uh, what is it? Oh, uh, the Fresh Starts, the Fresh Start, Society and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Reaper Man, who were like the quintessential example of that. You, you see it here. I suppose the thing with the three of them is, and I hadn't thought this until you said it, but it, it it's a good way of thinking to actually analyse that comment and mm. see what it says about it is that he maybe sees all those three things as 
subverting or above or getting beyond the law like kings mm. and the fact that they can just you know make make up the laws to go along you know, they do uh, natural law they uh, pervert that basically by yeah, the fact of being yeah. undead and, and, and maybe he sees them as like oh they have they have nothing to lose in that mm. you know fear of death or jail or something maybe is, it, you know isn't as much for them um and assassins in that, like they're literally you know, hired to break the law by exactly, killing people, yeah. and it's just accepted because they're really rich and so on. Um, I also so I, I suppose it speaks to his prejudice there that we see tawing over the course of the books mm-hmm. against the undead. In that, like as you said, most of the undead we see don't really pervert. You know, what well, you're right, they pervert the like by now bodily or natural law but they don't pervert the law of the land like mm. you know go around killing or stealing because they can get away with it uh, but presumably that's what that's what Vimes like thinks is that you know there's there's less of a less of an incentive for them to actually follow the law and that's why he's uncomfortable with them and you know as it goes on I mean eventually you get a vampire in the watch and toad so this is obviously something he, he taws on so it's interesting that like here he lumps them in with kings and assassins as mm. these people who you know, don't really give a feck about, you know, natural justice. I also think it's really interesting that, like, he ranks kings as the thing he hates the most. And like, I feel like that uh, kind of goes back to, you know, where he talks about old, old Stoneface and mm. uh, how he murdered the king and, like, how that follows him around. So when he says he hates kings, I imagine that's not really so much kings, but, like, his history with kings, you know, and, like, the kind of person he might be. Well, I think he hates the idea. Like, he goes through with Carrot where he has to talk with him about... Mm you know, is the king a good man? Will you better hope his second in command's a good man and his son's a good man? And just how messed up the whole situation is to give absolute power to someone and how easily it can all go wrong. Um, but uh, the, the Stoneface thing, I think, comes up more in Feet of Clay. And mm. I don't get too much into it here, but it's always something that sat a bit ill with me because of the obvious Cromwell parallels mm. and the really weird <laughs> place Cromwell has in a lot of British people's conception of history compared to Irish people's conception yeah. of history. Um, <laughs> and, well, we won't get into that now, but it's it's like it's something that uh, like I I'll, see I'll be mean. curious when I read Feet of Clay about whether it you know uh, yeah whether it's something that 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 irks me. Um, <laughs> I also find it just um, interesting that the way that Vimes and Carrot's ancestors, because essentially Stoneface killed one of Carrot's ancestors yeah, yeah. and now the way it's worked out is Carrot basically works for Vimes and has huge respect yeah. for Vimes so uh, in a way it's it's sort of like um, it's not really a spoken thing but it's just kind of a general universal admission that yes Vimes you are right even though that Carrot's the one who's doing everything that's good for the city and part of that involves idolising Vimes because he's the one who kind of set the foundations for everything the city could potentially mm-hmm. be in terms of you know good yeah so uh yeah that's really interesting also the fact that he uh this is something that i didn't really pick up on the first time you know the fact that he puts his sword right into the pillar and, and the that pe- whole thing about yeah a guy yeah. who could put a sword into a stone that's yeah, far more impressive and that's great because you know everyone's constantly dismissing the idea of like pulling a sword out of the stone that's nothing it's like that's a false reason to give somebody like you know all this power but they're always like almost joking like find me the person who put the sword yeah. into the stone now there's a leader and that's exactly what Kara does and it's like that's never picked up on it before I was just kind of like ah there we go uh, have you seen the joke that's been going around there was some um, I think like a 10 year old girl recently found a medieval sword in a lake 
Um, and really? do the joke like, oh, she's now the ruler of Britain because King Arthur, <laughs> she's been given the sword out of the lake, you know. Fantastic. <laughs> but uh, I, I, that whole bit with Carrot recruiting the militia, and I, I really like that. Um, that part, I think, like for one, it's it's, it's really funny with with Detritus getting so into it and becoming that kind of um, quasi drill. So you know what they got up in Slice Mountain. Rocks and other kind of rocks. What sort are you? Um, but also, it's also a nice development where it's like Detritus is like after being mocked for being incompetent and stupid the whole time, is actually becoming a competent guard at that stage. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, and then we see like how quickly Colin, who's actually the superior officer there, begins to parent Carrot, calling him Sir. And then when uh, Angus sees Carrot actually get back to his quarters and just look exhausted and act, like decide he can't show in front of everyone of just this is bloody hard work and I don't even know if it's going to go correctly and how he still does it by the book the whole time yeah, you know yeah. when he starts asking the Daywatch guy about like the property he owns because then it's you're legally able to recruit <laughs> a body of men to um I yeah I, I really like it it's, it's both like you know like brilliantly bizarre and yet in character and the whole bit is full of comedy and yet develops the plot really well and like is an interesting interesting idea of I suppose the like ultimately the the law serving to uh, um, put up barriers against racial tensions spilling over down just exacerbating them or repress or trying to repress those tensions by recruiting trolls and dwarves mm. together and you know how this actually works and it isn't entirely smooth but it's uh you know it's, it's still the, the the best thing anyone can do in that scenario mm, absolutely yeah. one thing we haven't spoken about at all is the whole uh big fido dogs uh yeah i found that a little unusual in this book um I suppose a little out of place i it, it kind of ties into some of the themes that we're talking about but um i don't think it's a particularly strong part of the book to be honest and um, i yeah. like it i like it a lot i especially like the description of big fido once we realize it's the poodle and not this image in our head of this giant massive mm-hmm. rabbit dog and it's it's wonderful um but yeah in terms of like how it serves the entire story i'm i just kind of i feel it's lacking a little uh like to thematically it definitely ties in with the you know like the uh, racial or cultural identity mm. with big fido and and dogs and so on uh, and, I, and i think i said before in moving pictures and it's true gaspo does fit in uh, a lot uh, you know a lot better here like obviously he's perfect for this plot he functions as a good kind of a good way for us to see anua in action as a werewolf without just mm. like having you know her in her monologue the whole time um, and I love the scene when, when Big Fido dies and it's just Absolutely. three lines Big Fido yes heal and it really sums up what a fixture of this world death has become that you know he doesn't even have to be introduced by name he, he gets you see two, by two lines and yeah that's oh well, I suppose he's, he's earlier with Bjorn Hammerhawk but um, yeah it, it's great um, and I like the idea of the I think it's like a, a shout out to Waterhouse uh, Waterhouse Watership Down about the uh, the dogs coming up with stories of what actually happened to Big Fido because oh, they don't really yes. want to admit that he's gone. But it is sort of odd that even though thematically it ties in, plot wise it doesn't at all. Like like the mm. only its only connection to the main plot is that I think at one stage like the whole business with the dogs and them chasing Angua and Gaspo stops Angua from getting to Carrot as quickly as she might have to tell him about what she found out in the, the Assassin's mm. Guild. 
but yeah by the time she gets to him he knows that anyway like about um Edward Diaz uh so yeah it, it does sort of feel like an odd fit in that sense of like yeah it, it sort of it runs parallel and it's it's kind of you know it's two parallel strips that are the same color because mm. they're about the same thing but doesn't doesn't really tie up and what also feels strange and admittedly this is me being a real nerdy like yeah damn it's a scratchy episode <laughs> <laughs> um, is that in moving pictures uh, Gaspo and the other animals could talk because of the magic of Hollywood right mm. and here we get the fact that Gaspo can talk because he was like eating something off mm. um the, like on University and he gets sentient because of that and he refers to the fact that it's happened to him before uh, and, and he has this other power over the dogs by being able to actually talk as a human mm. and you know make make them do things um, and the bit where he gets convinces Captain Quirky is an itchy arse that's <laughs> great wonderful. that's a wonderful part but the rest of the dogs are sentient they just can't talk yeah. and, and they haven't had anything like that and it feels odd because in future books we never get any of that. Like Gaspo's the only, you know, an oddity in being a talking dog. Um, and when you get to the amazing Morris, all of the animals in that have have gained some sort of sentience through yeah. some kind of magical thing. And what, like, say Gaspo and Laddie in um, in Moon Pictures, Laddie isn't really fully sentient, and like Gaspo's driven up the wall talking about how, like, how dumb, you know, how dumb and subservient he is. Um, so here you have Gaspard actually saying like the only reason he's thinking like this is because he ate something off the like the you know the magic stuff off the back of Monsignor University. Mm. But the rest of the dogs can think in a way that's sentient as well. But they haven't done anything like that, and they don't have the power to speak the way he does. So it feels sort of odd. It's like the book kind of introduces its own rules of well, here's why Gaspard can talk, and they just throws him out the window for a while. Like yeah. big, big Fido has this consciousness of. You know, um, of of like why he, you know, his name and uh, humans and dogs and wolves and so on, and even the other dogs like Butch and what was a Black Roger, even though they're dumb, they're still like they're no dumber than dumb humans. Yeah, know? yeah. And um, so it's it, 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 I, like I know it seems a real continuity have to be like oh, twenty books later and the Amazing Morris he comes yeah. up in a completely different way animals go, but it's within this book it introduces this idea of here's why Gaspo is sentient and then just the rest of them are just sentient anyway <laughs> yeah I suppose you could argue that um, you know how in uh, moving pictures like they say Laddie and uh, it seems like he's just a normal dog but Gaspo says to Victor says oh yeah he actually is talking you want to know what he's saying good boy good boy Laddie so Laddie actually is like the dumbest dog yeah. ever <laughs> but he seems really intelligent so it could be that like um maybe the dogs are acting that way like maybe if they're not obedient then yeah maybe they're sentient if that makes sense like yeah but I, I feel like like Laddie even though you, you can hear him talk because he's talking to Gaspo in dog in the same way like if we have two dogs in this room and they're barking at one another they presumably communicate something they can understand that we can't mm. um, but he isn't sentient in the sense that like he you know he barely knows who he is let alone the people around him and he just wants to kind of like eat and please people and so on um, you know he, he's like like how uh, like uh, what's like the dog and up oh the yeah way, the way he, he can talk but his whole like monologue is like how you would imagine what a dog's thought is Absolutely, whereas yeah. Big Fido like you know he, he started a gill so yeah. yeah yeah he like he is a brain like a human like he is mm-hmm. uh, like uh, unconscious thought and it, it's just odd because the book goes out of its way to explain 
why Gaspode can talk after the end of moving pictures or why he is mm. sentient and then just doesn't address why the other dogs are like that. If I remember right, does at the end of moving pictures, doesn't he revert back to just Yeah, he does dog? and that that's why he has to he yeah. says here about eating the stuff off. I feel like that's just something if I feel that like uh Terry Pratchett started writing this, he probably thought to himself, Oh, I'd love to bring Gaspel back in. Oh, but I made him normal Ah, we'll fix it with that. If if he hadn't, um, you know, made Gaspard revert back to just being a normal dog, he could very easily have just introduced him without that whatsoever. And I don't think we would have questioned this as much. Yeah, but I think we would even then because Gaspard in moving pictures is singled out as unusual in mm. being able to talk and think consciously because of the magic of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. And it's like having gotten rid of that, he needs to come up with another reason why this character can you know, talk and be a sarky little, like, you know, sod again. And he comes up with one and then doesn't come up with one for all of the other dogs who, while not as clever as Gaspode, clearly have, like, you know, conscious minds. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I just, I, I find it, like, like, it almost would have been, like, if Gaspode hadn't have been in moving pictures and this was just a book we found out that all Discworld dogs can actually think like this, it, it would, it, it, yeah, it would, it would, it would be less odd, but but it sort of feels like he is mm. drawing a dividing line between well, here's Gaspode and he's sentient because of this unusual accident he had, and most other dogs aren't. Mm. But then he sort of you know has Big Fido and the others being like even if they can't communicate with humans, clearly like sentient after a fashion, and not just in the sense of like they can communicate with other dogs, like they can communicate something more than. You know, I'm angry at you. I want to eat you, or yeah. I, or I want to eat you. I want to eat. I want to, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's just an. I feel odd like it's um, it's a situation for a lot of the time when uh, animals are being written in the book. If if it can be made to work for a joke, you know, it, it will work for a joke. Like for example, you know, in Reaper Man, where there's that cockerel. Who mm-hmm. death decides like uh, this is how you say cockroach? Oh, yeah. You know, strictly speaking, you know, cockroaches can't read, so you know, like, there's no reason to think that this particular cockerel has any kind of special powers. But you know, it works for the joke, so it's it's not something that mm-hmm. I think that you know Terry Pratchett spent a lot of time agonizing over. Obviously. Yeah, but it's more than a joke here. Yeah. You know, it's 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 like a a, a big plot element in mm-hmm. like in itself. You know, um, like and. Colour of Magic, he said, was written just for the jokes. Mm. And I feel like he's come on a lot as a writer and the Discworld has come on a lot since then. So, you know, I'm not saying it's this massive failing and God, he's like a hundred, a thousand times the writer I am. But if we're going to be kind of like analysing this and thinking about it and, you know, like it, I, like I want to be as, uh, I suppose, just be honest and, and, and be critical where something jars with me like that mm. and like at this stage in the Discworld when we've seen how well he can write it feels odd that there's this slip up that I feel like it's you know it's sort of lazy to justify by saying oh well it's funny because mm. you know that was that was how he was writing 15 books ago um, when like we would be quick to praise how much he has developed and how much series has developed since then mm. so at the same time we should understandably like if we're going to go that one way and you know praise it more we should also then hold it to a higher standard of oh yeah absolutely you know, um, I think I do think you're right actually yeah and um, I get the sense that this is a case of this is something that he enjoyed writing about but I also think he was probably aware 
that it doesn't quite sync up. Like, I don't think it's any coincidence that none of the dogs really interact with any human characters yeah. in the book. Like, it does feel very separate from the overall plot. Like you said, like, it doesn't really affect anything except for the purpose of uh, holding Angua up when she's supposed to be going to save Carrot. But even in that scenario, almost anything else could have worked in that case. But, uh, yeah, it's just I think it's just a case of this is something... This was more a scenario that Terry Pratchett thought this works as a joke mm-hmm. as a little kind of mini story in itself doesn't quite sync up here but I'll make it work you know yeah. and, it, and as you said it's not a massive failing mm-hmm. but I, I do totally take your point it, it does jar a little bit because it doesn't quite it isn't doesn't fit seamlessly into the plot and there's a lot right with it like I like I, I like the you know in the same way that the uh, aristocrats go off a kind of myth of an imaginary golden age mm. Big Fido has this myth of an imaginary wolf and how Angua has that conversation with Gaspar where she's like wolves don't think like that yeah. so, you know what he thinks wolves are aren't what you know wolves are really like like I you know I, I think that's again like a, a nice clever way of underscoring the the uh, the main themes of the book and um, yeah, yeah I love Big Fido's death scene and even though said it, it runs it, it doesn't interact with the main plot at all it, I, I still feel like like Gaspard is fits in much better here is much better used than in moving pictures where like while he was a fun character he sometimes felt a bit odd and out of place and you know why is there a talking dog in this book you know mm-hmm. whereas here when you already have a werewolf and you're tie, tying it into the rest of the plot via the whole prejudice cultural identity ethnic you know race species identity uh, undertones it yeah fits in like um it, it fits in a lot better uh despite those despite those flaws mm. um so i think I've, I've about expended all my notes here have you do you want to get the rank of this or did you have anything more uh, oh sorry one more tiny thing there's a molly malone reference uh, is there yeah yeah molly malone dublin's dublin's mascot for any of you listening overseas uh when dibbler is there's a reference to him like it's like like pushing his uh, wheelbarrow to streets broad and narrow, mm. like the opening lines oh, of the Molly Malone song. I never even I yeah. didn't top that yeah. at all. Wow, yeah. that's really interesting. Um, one more thing I want to draw your attention to now is just a um, little bit at the end after uh, Carrot has made his demands of or requests of veterinary. What do you think of the whole idea of the throne not being made of gold and that it's just like painted gold? I like that. It's mm. uh, it's so. Um, Mike Moorpork you know yeah that's the uh, the basically like scratch the scratch the surface and it's uh, um, it's it's not as it's not quite as it seems and it's the result is usually more disappointing and the idea of how um, veterinary uses something like a, a king which is sort of thoroughly in a lot of ways debunked in this book Bolton Bimes' dismissal of you know how arbitrary and uh, open to abuse the system kingship is and carrots like implicit turning down of the chance to become king we see how veterinary still has use of this myth of kingship mm. but it's sort of showing like yeah it's it's a useful fantasy to calm people's fears but beneath it there's no substance and and it's great that immediately after that he says oh you've told me what policeman means now would you like to know what politician means and like it's, yeah. just, it's great that like he's utilising this absolute lack of uh, anything to basically uh, coerce the city into working uh, mm-hmm. the way it does. It's 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 a I think it's a terrific uh, use of imagery right there. And 
yeah, it's 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 a nice like subtle little thing that like I feel like could have very easily just been come up with like that, and it works so well. Um, that's more or less all the notes I have, but I do have my traditional one or two little lines oh, that I yeah. really enjoy, um, or just little bits and pieces in this show. First of all, the fact that Leonard de Quirm gets introduced in this book, yeah. which is great. I wasn't sure which book it was that he came into it, but he seems to pop up quite a lot in later. Yeah, well, ones. he plays a, a relatively big role in, in Jingo and mm. in the Last Hero, um, and he's he's quite minor here, but I, I sort of I like the way he's mm. uh, the way he's introduced. He even though in the same way that I said like you know Gaspo's introduced moving pictures and feels like he fits in other books better like you'd certainly get to, you'd get to, almost get the feeling and maybe this is just hindsight talking that when Pratchett's introduced come here he's thinking I've got to come back to this guy and use him in a better yeah, way absolutely but yet despite that he still feels perfectly in keeping here like he's a great explanation for why the gun exists in the first place the whole description of being the most dangerous man in, in, in the city uh, is wonderful the idea of veterinary just sort of keeping him under lock and key but yeah. he can't really imprison his mind fits in perfectly with veterinary and how he runs the city it's um, and at this stage you've had two city watch books so you know it's not just a standalone series if you're say if you're imagining someone reading these as they come out, you've had this one end with plans to enlarge the watch that would seem to promise there'll be more of this down the line. Mm. So you do get the feeling you'll be seeing more of this guy. So his brief appearance here doesn't feel jarring that like, oh, this weird character that pops up for a few pages and, and is gone. It's great. He's really well developed. I'm sorry, de- developed. Um, just his entire personality. It's so distinct. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, you, you do get with a lot of characters that they seem to like change over the course of the book. But with Leonard, it's always a case of this kind of dreamy, uh, misty eyed kind of, I just want the world to be a better place. And that's consistent the entire way through. I think there's a point in one of the books where he gets really upset when he finds out that one of his inventions was used for... I think it's in Jingo, actually, where he... I think Veterinary discusses the use of tanks or something like that, or something. I, I'm not sure. Um, little also extra fact. I love the fact uh, the point where they mention... The alchemists mention, you've never seen the Mona Og. Oh, yeah. And like, how he paint. And like, I, I remember reading this. There's a, a big... A collection of Discworld art of the Discworld yeah, and that's on the it, front yeah. cover of it yeah the Mona Og and I always just assumed that was just like you know a funny version of, like, I, I know it says it like at the bottom mm-hmm. um, oh it's the Mona Og and I just thought this was something that like the illustrators just came up with says, you know what would be great if we made the Mona Lisa but we'll make it with like a young Nanny Og I didn't realise mm-hmm. that actually happened in like I, I'm, I'm sure it clicked at one stage but it just didn't really properly yeah. register and I love that it's a thing like that at some stage in Nanny Og's life she met with Leonard de Quirm and like uh, just had her portrait uh, painted and like it'd be great even though I'm, I don't think it unless it happens in like one of the last books that we haven't read yet I love the fact that Nanny Og doesn't know about this existing yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's just this great piece of art and she's just like it's almost like Titanic or something well it's like uh, in, in Masquerade isn't like the sort of plot of that driven by the fact that her cookbook Oh, it's been, yeah. she's never got the royalties and she's only belatedly realising what a big seller it was so I I hadn't thought of it when I read Masquerade but it's, it, it's interesting that that comes only I think a few maybe two or two or three books away from we're that. not far three or yeah. four books um, from this reference to this really valuable famous piece of artwork that is based on her that she probably has no idea about too it's a really um, interesting view of Nanny Og from outside of Lancre actually yeah, <laughs> like yeah. she's just this like in, insanely like a mysterious figure who does all these ludicrous things you know mm-hmm. uh, just one or two other bits uh, I love the fact 
bloody stupid Johnson comes up in this who <laughs> I don't know if he's come up in Guards Guards or any of the previous books this um, is, I don't think so I absolutely love him as like a narrative device it's like the amount of fun Terry Pratchett must have had just yeah. like I'm going to come up with like a billion stupid inventions and just like throw them like pepper them in and out of like the books and it's it's one of my favourite things whenever I see like the words bloody stupid Johnson come <laughs> apart from the fact it's so much fun to say but like it's just I love the idea of this like renowned inventor who invented hundreds upon hundreds of things yeah. and he's utterly utterly like uh, inept at yeah, inventing it's like the anti-Leonard yeah exactly I, I, I love there's a throwaway reference I think it's in maybe it's in Feedy Clay or, or Jingo to the fact that uh, the Rankin uh, manor and like grounds doesn't have like is kind of un- unlike a lot of big houses in the city is unafflicted by any bloody Super Johnson design <laughs> because Sybil's grandmother had seen him strolling up the path and shot him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just this wonderful juxtaposition because you really get the sense here of that he's this, you know, that he's not this malignant force that he's just so cheerily oblivious to the massive mistakes he's making. So the idea of him like, wandering up the path into like oh I'll go see if Lord Rampkin wants me to like build him anything and Rampkin having this very fair idea in the set of this guy's a menace <laughs> shooting him it's just... it is excellent um, one other thing that like uh, I think is great is there's a brief moment where they mentioned the post office Ah, and yeah. uh, like I had it in my head that like just the post office doesn't exist or just like it's never mentioned no of course it does because in um uh, going postal mm. like one of the key plot elements is the fact that the post has built up over like years yeah. and years and years so of course it would exist but I just felt like in my head I was like well I'm sure it's never mentioned before so it's nice that it's in here and like as well as that I think Vimes specifically says yeah it doesn't work nobody ever actually uses the post office anymore so it actually in that mm. case continuity works really really well even if it's just a little thing I'm yeah. sure like he just came up with we also have one of the longest gaps between setup and punchline where they look at the uh, motto to the post office and I can't really exactly think about it but something like, like neither rain nor snow but it's missing a few letters mm. so it's misspelled and you might put this down reading it to like the typical Discworld uh, you know mad spelling and then in Going Postal they say those specific letters were stolen to form the like a hairstylist across the road called Hugo's um, and it, it's all of the letters that are missing that you know give you the sort of like mal spelled version you see in Men at Arms um, I love that um, one other thing that I found a little bit confusing and kind of it's an odd juxtaposition the Pork Futures warehouse it's such an odd thing to have in here like the fact that you know he goes into so much detail explaining why this fantastical notion exists mm-hmm. in like you know the idea of a giant empty warehouse being built for the idea that pork at some stage will eventually exist in it it's so much effort it's so bizarre and original and it's really just a place to trap Cuddy and Detritus like it's yeah I think I think much I think it's in Toad Vimes meets Chrysophase there and it's pointed out that like Chrysophase schedules meetings there because because it's colder his you know his brain will be working uh. sharper and it'll discomfort the the uh, humans or dwarves he's meeting with and um, yeah I, I really liked it because just that setup of it like arising out of a combination of like the disc's weak um, reality field and Ankh-Morpork's citizens like you know uh, stubborn literal mindedness <laughs> yeah. felt 
seem to chime so well with everything we've read about the Disney yeah. work so far that uh, like for me it was like uh, he doesn't even have to you know justify using this more because of, of course there'd be a place like this at I never would have thought of it but now I've been introduced of course there is there's a bit in um, the second Discworld game where there's an entire location that's just the uh, Pork Futures warehouse and the only purpose that you need for it there is to get some ice and like they you know the artist actually put together this entire warehouse the only function of which is take some ice and you never have to go back there ever again it's like they they must have really really liked this idea yeah. because it doesn't really function for anything but it's just a really novel like idea to have there um the last thing i have is just a couple of lines that i really really like um first is the what was it the <laughs> the um Vimes' description of Sybil in that she was more highly bred than a hilltop bakery, <laughs> which I had to reread like once. I was like, ah, that's brilliant. Um, I also just really like the really, really casual way that Gaspo says hello to Angu at one point, which is like, yo, bitch. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. it's such a kind of like street sort of thing, but like, it's, oh, I, I love it. But my favorite thing, and this is the last thing I want to put up. This, I remember, this is one of those moments, you know when you're a kid and you're thinking back of like, oh yeah, Terry Pratchett, he's hilarious. There's this one bit, and there's like the, the occasional bit in the books that actually has you falling around the place laughing. And if I may, I think I'm just going to read it out because I love it so much. <laughs> it's where um, Colin is talking about his old drill sergeant. <laughs> and Nobby, tough was he? He said, Nobby lighting a cigarette. Tough, tough, blimey. 13 weeks of pure misery that was. 10 mile run every morning up to our necks in muck half the time and him yelling a blue streak and cussing us every living moment one time he made me stay up all night cleaning the lavies with a toothbrush he'd hit us with a spiky stick to get us out of bed we had to jump through hoops for that man we hate his damn guts we got <laughs> we'd have stuck one on him if he if any of us had the nerve but of course none of us did he put us through three months of living death but you know after the passing out parade us looking at ourselves and all in our new uniforms and all Real soldiers at last, seeing what we've become. Well, we saw him at the bar, and, well, I don't mind telling you. Me and Tonker Jackson and Hoggy Spuds waited for him in the alley and beat seven kinds of hell. <laughs> it took three days for my knuckles to heal. That is, like, one of the funniest moments yeah. in all of, like, Terry Pratchett's work. It's so good. Uh, so, that's me. Do you have anything, anything to add? Um, no, no, I think I've, I've expended my... My, okay. my thoughts on it. So the last thing we have is the exercise of I'm where does it go on the list? Yeah, yeah, indeed. So um, I don't think it goes to the top anyway. I would say, I mean, the obvious comparison might is Garrett's Garth, which is toured right now mm. um, behind Pyramids and Lords and Ladies. Is it better than Garrett's Garth? See, this is tricky now because I haven't read Garrett's Garth in a while. I always remember rating Garrett's Garth very, very highly. Mm-hmm. But thinking back on it now, I also remember it being a little bit simplistic in comparison to this book. So it's hard to say. I, I love the entire idea of guards, guards, like, you know, dragon attacking the city. It has a lot of traditional uh, fantasy stuff in there and it just kind of tweaks and perverts it a little bit, which I like the idea of. And this book, if you if you told me before we'd read them now, where would I rank it? I imagine I wouldn't rank it very highly, but I enjoyed it a lot more this time around. So um, let's see. I think I'd probably put it above Guards Guards, but I don't think I'd put it above Pyramids. I, I'm not sure how I'd put it above Guards Guards. You know, it's really like Spinner's Reader, both excellent. I just feel like 
just for like if I'm trying to be really ordered in my head that I, I had more issues with this one as even for all like the bits I you know the highs were really high but they were also really high in guards guards and just mm. uh, as I said I, like I was sort of dissatisfied um, obviously more so than you were but the, you know Crucis and how he's never really given a motivation to mm, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm really wrecking my brains over the whole uh, Dog's Guild subplot because on the one hand it fits in thematically very well but on the other hand there seems something structurally lacking that it never really ties in I, I said like like it, it, it's only relationship to the main plot is just a delay angua um, and I don't know if that can be seen as like I don't know like less less deft writing than maybe we've seen in Guards Guards which feels mm. like a much tighter book um, and there, there's the odd like odd bit of structure uh, I, I feel like a, a, you know in in this book that's a bit iffy not huge things but like there's a very weird bit where when they're going to investigate the Assassin's Guild which is a wonderful moment you have mentioned but the Assassin's Guild is two wonderful moments um, one where uh, Vimes says reveals that he does own it when oh yeah uh, that's great and the other when um when blah, 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 when Detritus comes in just in a black rage after Cuddy has died and uh, all the assassins realising oh actually we don't know how to kill a troll <laughs> and Carrot calming him down and Carrot's like lying about like you know if there's a heaven for Watchmen he's looking up at you Um, I find it really affecting and just you know because he's like you've seen their friendship develop over the whole book and he's uh, you know kind of talking Detritus down from going full Hulk mode by just appealing to his, his memory of Cody in a way that's really sweet. Um, but, oh yeah, but, but when they go to the Assassin's Guild, and Vimes seems to already figure out that it was a, an exploding dragon that done it. You know, he has the moment where the, like, they've just found out the dragon's gone missing. He sees a dragon explode when, when he's in the, the kennels with mm. Sybil. I think he actually muses about it. And then Angua hears it from Gaspode. And she suggested the Vimes, and he shoots it down. But he already seems to have figured that out, even though mm. he shoots it down. And then has it confirmed a few pages when when they find um, uh, Chubby. Is that the name of the, the dragon? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They find his collar. But it feels like, well, he was already on the road to, you know, to realise this anyway. And the collar would confirm it. But you get this bit in between where Angus suggests that, and he, he dismisses it. Mm. And it almost feels as if, like... I think it's more... I don't think it's really that he dismisses that. It's more that um, her method... Like, she, I think she says, oh, it's just like a... She, she says something Woman's about, intuition. Or yeah, yeah. I think I think that's why he dismisses it more so than actually what it is that she's putting forward. But yeah, but there is a line where he says something like, exploding dragons, what an imagination that girl had or something. And I, I don't know, I remember mm. just... Like, it, it just felt really strange. Like, I couldn't figure out what was the... Like, plot-wise, what's meant to be happening. Like, like mm. y- you know one of the reasons why Vimes is such an amazing character is that you can always follow his, his train of thought and see him like again you talk about being an underdog and he, and he is so much and part of that is because we see him kind of we can kind of see him as he reaches every rung on whatever ladder he's climbing towards you know resolving the, the mystery the book or doing what he has to do and this was one bit where like I, I didn't know where he where he was meant to be what he was meant to be thinking on it um, mm-hmm. in a way that sort of felt iffy and there's another bit where, like, this book's full of uh, references to, you know, other, like, detective shows and films. Um, uh, I the, the Twin Peaks reference where he goes into 
um, Sham Hargis and asks for coffee mm. uh, black as midnight and, and, and Sham starts quibbling with him I'd say other people would find that indulgent you know that again that doesn't really serve any purpose I just really liked it because I really yeah, course, I like yeah. Twin Peaks and, and Hargis sort of pedantic literal mindedness feels very ankh pork. you know it doesn't feel like a joke that's been shoehorned in there it feels very in keeping with City but the bit when he gets in a reference to in the heat of the night what they call me Mr. Vimes mm. that comes in a really like have you seen Into Heat at Night? No, no. I, I, know, I know amazing, the quote. It, it's an amazing film. You should see it. But the quote comes when uh, Virgil Tibbs is being racially abused and having his authority questioned by uh, the, 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 the... Oh, God. I can't remember the, the other guy's name. Um, the other inspector. And he's like, you know... Uh, like someone like you up in you know uh, what 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 do they call you up in Philadelphia? And he says they call me Mister Tibbs, and it's just kind of reassess reasserting of his authority of you know I'm a proper detective up there, and I'm damn well going to be a proper detective down mm. here, whether you're prejudiced against me or not. And you would think it would be quite straightforward to fit that quote in, fit a reference that quote in in a book that is about prejudice, yeah. and yet it comes at a really odd bit when Carrot has just sort of talked volumes down from you know using the gun and going rogue mm. and he almost just sort of says it wistfully to calm himself and probably because I like I seen In The Heat and I, I think only a couple of months ago for the first time really loved it. it it just felt really odd to me because it um, I said I, I love the Twin Peaks reference because it's it's a reference to something I love but it also fits in very well with the milieu yeah, of yeah. like Moorpork and this doesn't fit in very well with with like what what it's referencing in that moment in the book mm. and it was it just felt a little less artful than a lot of those references like I think when you see something like say I don't know like Family Guy that it's just so slapdash with mm. pop culture references um, it doesn't feel you know a very uh, deft or like the writers have worked hard to fit the stuff in and Pratchett's off to the other end spectrum where you have like it's riddled with references to things from like the uh, the most flippant uh, famous for 15 minutes pop culture to like deep philosophy and religion and science and things like that but they're usually fit in like uh, thrown in in a way that fits in well enough with the plot that even if you didn't get what he was referencing it wouldn't matter like it wouldn't jar you you wouldn't be like what's this bit about I have whereas I feel if I if I didn't know that was a reference to in the heat of the night I'd be wondering what, what, why is he saying to call me Mister Vimes now? Yeah, like, what's, um, what, like, what's what's this meant? Like you know, why is it this the sentence that calms him down? Yeah, it's um, like I haven't seen in the heat of the night, and I agree with you because uh, in that moment, it's like I I, I I didn't really know the context. I just knew it was supposed to be a very badass sort of moment mm-hmm. in the film. Um, so it, it's good to know that it has something to do with like racial tensions as well. So it's thematically relevant. But yeah, at the time, it is a very odd place to have it, and I don't think it fits in particularly well. Yeah, you it could feels say, like if you were going to have it in this book, you'd have detritus, or yeah, Cody or even Anguus say it. You, you, could, know? you could see um, it. You could see someone like detritus saying it, like, well, if he had a second name, I suppose. Maybe that's know, what, they call they call me Mister Detritus, or they they call me like you know uh, Mister Troll, like or something yeah, like like, that. like whatever Lance Lance Constable mm. did, detritus or. But um, um, it's not the only bit of that, though. There's another bit, and again, like you with the Twin Peaks bit, there's the bit where um, Cuddy says, oh, I'm too short for this shit, which is like yeah, lethal yeah. weapon reference. And it's like, it, you know, for one thing, it doesn't really make sense. Like, But, I mean, you're just kind of like, whatever, it's a reference. And, like, you know, again, 
has to do with racial tensions because that's all about like you know uh, white cop and black cop mm-hmm. overcoming their own uh, uh, diversities and differences like to work together as a team yeah, so that but, it, but it isn't as if the line in Lethal Weapon is like I'm too black for this shit or I'm too white for this shit yeah you I know, know it's, but it's, it it's, is it's, it's old right like um, so yeah, yeah. It, it, does, it does jar a bit it definitely feels like you wanted to fit it in it is just a case of like we want to bring up the fact that you know um we're hammering home the fact that this is about race you know yeah. again so it's yeah I think there are bits in this that we could definitely regard as quite yeah. clunky I know all those all those bits seem like really nitpicking I'm sure like if anyone's listening to this is a huge fan of men arms and like in themselves they're tiny they just like men in arms is an excellent book and guards guards is an excellent book and just above them you've got Pyramids which is like I think a, a, like a great book and you've got uh, Small Gods below them which I think is a great book you're less you know you're less uh, keen on um, so when it comes to ranking these like, like it's it can get down to really fine lines and exactly like, yeah, like yeah. You, you said you'd have this above Guards Guards and I was saying I'd have it below Guards Guards and like I, I was trying to you know make sense of like why the flaws of this stood out to me and just the, the, like if you take the, all those little out of place references along with the the fact that the dog's guild plot doesn't tie in with the main plot um um and, and uh, along with that you know, granted it wasn't as much of an issue for you that you like Cruz's motivations are kind of lost uh among the thematic mm. strength of the, the gun is just you know corrupter uh corrupter of people uh, like I, I just feel like it, it speaks overall to some like structural and plotting failings in men at arms that like on their own it's still an you know an excellent really enjoyable book but if you're rating it up against other excellent books to me like that that's what would put it below guards guards mm. well as i said now i didn't read guards guards with you guys so it's not fresh in my head like i just have I'm basically going off the opinion I had when I read it years ago. So I'd be willing to accept it. I mean, as I said, like, um, we, there are flaws to this book. Like I do really, I said the highs are highs mm-hmm. and, um, it just, it, it is nitpicky. It's, um, I, I, I think I could probably justify putting it below guards, guards, I'd say, because, um, I do remember really, really enjoying that book. I was just thinking because I have this one fresh in my mind and I can appreciate all the nuances and like the themes that they yeah, had. Yeah, it's great. Um, always tough with these things. Uh, I would rate it above Small Gods, but we won't even go into that discussion. Yeah, well, <laughs> this, is the, this is the difficult bit for me because like, I, I wouldn't, but at the same time, I don't see like... I don't know. I, I don't see how we, we can reach a further compromise there like about where books will go that I like I think are you know say like like as it goes on we're going to get more books between the top and small gods and to me like small gods would probably be in the like you know top five or so I, I don't know like my opinion may change as, as I read all them again but you're going to get more books in between so you're going to have situations like this where like like to me um, you know, men, men like you, if you're gonna put men at arms above, uh, like small gods, then there probably be more and more books pushing it further and further mm-hmm. down. And to me, it's like well, we say might like uh, reach a book later where you're saying, oh, well, it's definitely as good as guards, guards. So we've got to put it at least there and there, and that like to me at least pushes small gods like kind of like un unjustly uh, down. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I like I would. Small Gods isn't perfect by by any means. Um, uh, we uh, we went into the kind of 
like Vorbis's odd turn at the end, but I still feel like Vorbis is a much better, um, like well drawn villain who ties in like perfectly with what that book's all about than mm. Crucis is here. Uh, like, um, who feels like uh, to almost to an extent like he's a bit of a like clever uh, plot twist of of having you know the villain be someone other than than Edward done done some of the ties in um and I and I don't think like I don't think Small Gods is the structural flaws that Men in Arms does and again it's all splitting hairs like these two mm. are excellent like I sort you know I, I'd recommend either and to almost anyone you know if someone was saying like oh I'm gonna read Men in Arms so I'm be like oh don't read that piece of junk oh, like it's like this will probably be still in like the top whatever this could be in the top 20 or something by the time we finish which mm. I know there's 40 50 books there's like 40 50 books most of them are really really good mm, exactly, so yeah. like anything that's in and around there is is good but um and like even as you say like mort is below that and even though if i was to rate it in terms of the quality of writing i'd probably rate um meta arms better but i simply prefer the story of mort so <laughs> i'd rank Mort higher um i think we need to stop kind of looking at this in terms of like um titles and more see kind of the trajectory of the quality of writing so, like, I mean, we have down Eric is just kind of an unfortunate experiment because it's, yeah. we accept it as a, you know, um, a novel when it's not really. And then there's Lords of Ladies at the top, which we have is just like an exceptionally well-written book. Mm. And, like, you can kind of see the trajectory, like, from the bottom to the top, you know, like how the writing has improved. And there, there's a bit of confusion up here where, like, our preferences kind of clash. Mm-hmm. But um, if we kind of view it in that sense, where we place it there... It's unfortunate because I think it's somewhere around Small Gods and Mort, though. <laughs> somewhere in between or on the outside. or Yeah, I mean, like, if we put it below Let, bo- bo- take... below Mort as a new number six, I mean, that's still incredibly high, you know. Mm. Um, uh, it, it's tricky because we're, we're, we're coming off, like, like a, a run of them as well, where, like, at the early stage, the list is so, so small, and it's certainly... Like, I don't know if there's a continual upward trajectory in the disc world. Like, I definitely feel like... I'll put it... Okay, I haven't read The Shepherd's Scramble. I'll put it this way. I don't think the best disc world book is the last one. You know, I, I Fair, think, like, yeah. for me, there's definitely a best one that's that's earlier than that. And then there's, you know, ups and downs. And even the downs are still, like, really high. But um, it, it is sort of... Like, the list is oddly structured right now by the fact that there is definitely a huge jump in the quality of the writing Absolutely, from the very yeah. early ones to, like, you know, to later on. Um... So, like, continually, as we've been doing this, with the exception of Eric, everything else has, you know, the list isn't small enough that everything else is featuring at the upper end and right at the top. So saying, oh, would we put Men at Arms at, like, number six behind Mort seems like at our list will now be, what, 15 books after this? Mm. Seems, like, relatively low, but really in the greater scheme of, like, quite what high. will eventually be a, what, like, 50-book, 40-something book list is quite high right now and will probably still keep it quite high by the end. I just want to have a look at it there now. I think, let's see. Yeah, do you know what? I think you're right. I think I would place it as the new number six in retrospect. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't rate it above Mort. Um, Reaper Man, I had some issues with, even though I really enjoyed it. But I think I enjoyed this slightly more, even though I feel some of the issues, there were different issues, but the more maybe more prevalent in this mm-hmm. one. It's a tricky call. I would either... It'd either be just uh, above Reaperman or just below it, but I'm thinking above it. I'm thinking I'd rate that as number six. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's 
likewise for me, I, I but like with Reaper Man. So Reaper Man, it's it's funny actually. It has a, it has a very similar issue where you have these parallel plots mm-hmm. that don't come together from a plot wise, but thematically they're very you know, they're yeah, excellent. Yeah, 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 are, are excellent. And I think it's more of a thing in, in Reaper Man because like the the Dogs Guild is very much like a, a you very, know it's, it's a, a very plot here. Where... Yeah, but but it just feels sort of awkward because it you know it doesn't it, it doesn't tie, tie in as much whereas yeah Reaperman like the whole book's divided almost into into three so um it's tricky uh like Reaperman might have I, I feel like maybe a bigger book conceptually because it's about things like life and death um and maybe has more uh, maybe has more emotional highs with the death misfit thing. Although I think Men at Arms, one of its strengths is like a lot of the emotional moments. Like I said, mm. like Vimes, Sybil, Carrot, Angua, we'll see more of them later. And I don't want to kind of weigh, you know, when we're, we're when we're grading these uh, books, we're rating them as standalone. Even if something like Lords and Ladies, we love so much because it was like perfectly climaxed and like give catharsis to Built, built upon the previous books and I feel that's fair enough but I feel it would be more unfair to say oh yeah he introduces this really good character in this book and we know they're going to be really good from a future book so you yeah. know I feel like that shouldn't inform it as much but um, but this book like while, while, think, this, while this book isn't doesn't provide the big emotional highs for characters for couples like Angua Carrot and yeah Vime, Sybil there's still a lot of really lovely moments here mm. uh, emotionally there's like I said that like Carrot gift wrapping a city mm. the uh, Cuddy detritus friendship and Carrot managing to talk him down Vimes is very bleak honest look at you know what his life is going to be like and then like, like I think it's nice you can see Sybil as sort of quietly satisfied with the fact that he's reinvigorated at the end of the book mm. like I think like none of those moments would jump into your head probably as oh yeah that was one of the moments and really took my heartstrings in Discworld but yeah at the same time as, uh, as I read them at least they they did affect me quite a bit um, yeah I think it's the fact that um, so I just will say that I think it's perfectly fine to rate um, books uh, in comparison to the books that came before but yeah not so fair in comparison to books like that we know that we've read already but we know are coming mm-hmm. up, so that's yeah that. But I think um, with Men at Arms, you are right that it, because it's such a political, action heavy and like you know, it's it, it's like a crime story. That's what makes all the like romantic aspects of it and all the emotional, sentimental bits stand out all that much more. Like I mean, you could say the same for Reaperman. Re, 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 Reaperman, there are some emotional moments in it, but it is a romantic story. Like mm-hmm. you know, so that's maybe what like uh, uh, numbs those motions a little bit more um, so yeah if you're happy with it I'd put it at number 6 new number 6 new number Men 6 arms we have between Mort and Reaper man um, yeah so I hope you enjoyed that lengthy uh, kerfuffle about uh, gun control and race relations and trolls and werewolves um, um, dominating and submissive <laughs> yeah, relationships yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you want to get in touch with us by all means do we'd love to hear from you you can find us at radiomorepork.wordpress.com you can find us uh, you can listen to other episodes if I don't know how you stumbled across this one but you can find us on iTunes on Podcast Addict on SoundCloud you can find us on Twitter and Facebook if you just look for Radio Morpork or you can email us at radiomorpork at gmail.com if you've got some feedback if you want to get a conversation going if you've got any uh, questions or comments on uh, um, any upcoming episodes or anything you want us to address on air we'd, we'd love to 
um, here for you. There's a big Discworld fan community out there, so it would be great to kind of um, for this to become part of the the dialogue of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's all of those wonderful communicative options out there for you, dear listener. Until next time, goodbye. Toodaloo. Thank you.